Hello, everyone, and welcome to Controversy and Clarity, a podcast of the Warfighting Society. I'm your host, Damien O'Connell. This is episode 19, season four. It's been a few months since our last episode. I've been busy with consulting work and other Warfighting Society efforts. We've got one to two more episodes before we close out this season and begin a new one. In today's episode, we have the great honor of speaking with Colonel David Glantz, U.S. Army retired. In my view, Colonel Glantz is the preeminent expert on the Soviet-Nazi war in the English-speaking world. I first encountered his work in college and began exchanging emails with him, and over the years I've benefited tremendously from his work and our interactions. I'm deeply grateful he agreed to come on the podcast and for being so generous with his time. I hope you take a lot away from our conversation, because I certainly did. Here's Colonel Glantz's bio. Colonel Glantz is the author, co-author, or editor of more than 60 publications, including his Stalingrad trilogy, When Titans Clashed, How the Red Army Stopped Hitler, The Battle of Kursk, Zhukov's Greatest Defeat, The Red Army's Epic Disaster in Operation Mars 1942, and Red Storm Over the Balkans, The Failed Soviet Invasion of Romania, Spring 1944. He is a distinguished graduate of the Virginia Military Institute and earned his master's degree in modern European history at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. Beginning his military career in 1963, Colonel Glantz had more than 30 years of service in the U.S. Army, including numerous field artillery assignments and tours of duty in Vietnam, Germany, and elsewhere. He is a graduate of the U.S. Army Command and General Staff College, Defense Language Institute, Institute for Russian and Eastern European Studies, and the U.S. Army War College. He was the second director of the Soviet Army Studies Office, later the Foreign Military Studies Office, and was the founder and editor of the Journal of Soviet Military Studies later renamed the Journal of Slavic Military Studies. He served as its editor-in-chief until January 2018. He is a member of the Academy of Natural Sciences of the Russian Federation and a 2015 recipient of the Russian Federation Ministry of Defense's Medal for the Strengthening of Military Cooperation. In 2000, he received the Society for Military History's Samuel Elliott Morrison Prize for his work in the field of Soviet military history, and in 2020, he was the 14th recipient of the Pritzker Military Museum and Library Literature Award for Lifetime Achievement in Military Writing. Our conversation spanned several hours, and we touched on many topics, including what led him to study the Soviet Nazi war, the operational level of war, a contentious topic these days, the concept of lessons learned, how and why Operation Barbarossa failed, forgotten battles and major myths of the Eastern Front, the movie Enemy at the Gates, the current war in Ukraine, and much more. A few things to note. We recorded this episode over three sessions in May and June. There are a few places where we retread topics, particularly the 11th February 1976 incident in the Volta Gap, Stalin's decision not to attack Berlin in February 1945, and the Battle of Berlin itself. However, each time we revisit a topic, Colonel Glantz provides additional and I thought interesting details, so I decided to leave in these revisits. But if you find yourself getting bored, feel free to use the skip button. And with that, here's our conversation with Colonel David Glantz. Enjoy. Colonel Glantz, it's an absolute honor to have you on the show. I'm really excited to talk about the Great Patriotic War, as the Russians call it, the Eastern Front, as the Germans call it, and related topics. So thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you. I welcome the opportunity to speak on a subject that I spent many years studying. Sir, before we get into that, I'd actually like to talk about some of your early career in the U.S. Army. So many of our listeners know you as the English-speaking world's expert on the Soviet Army in World War II, 
but few know about your, your service in the Vietnam War. Would you share with us some of your experiences in Vietnam? Where did you serve? What did you do? I'd be glad to. I went to Vietnam. You have to understand, when I joined the Army out of VMI, I had a commission, a, a regular Army commission. And I think I was the last person in the Army to actually receive the permission to go get a degree without payer allowances for two years, which I proceeded to do at the University of North Carolina. That meant ultimately that I came back into the Army as a shavetail first lieutenant rather than a shavetail second lieutenant. <laughs> While at North Carolina, I met my wife, whom I'm caring for right now. And she, the day before she met me, she signed up for the Navy nursing program to pay for her nursing degree at North Carolina. So when I left graduate school with a master's, we were married. She headed back to Newport, Rhode Island, and I headed to Germany for my first assignment. And we were separated for the first five years, the final year being my year in Vietnam. So it's a rather interesting way to build a family. Yeah. I went to Vietnam in August. 69, uh, 68 rather, after the first Tet. I was there for the little Tet in 69, and I came back in August 1969. It's interesting to listen because the finger of fate has a great deal to do with my being able to sit here today. And in this case, I flew into 99th Replacement Battalion next to Plantation, I was on orders to the 1st Infantry Division as a forward observer, likely, and I had all my patches on my uniform, and I was sat there for three days in the heat, and this big hand came out of 2nd Field Force, which is Corps Headquarters, and plucked me up and moved me over about, I guess, two football fields to the headquarters of 2nd Field Force Artillery and remained there for an entire year. I had, unlike most of my counterparts, I lived for a year in the, the bunkers, the command bunker of 2nd Field Force. It was actually air-conditioned, the second half, my second six months there. But, of course, I had to rip all the patches off for the 1st Infantry Division and put all new ones on for 2nd Field Force. So it was the finger of faith that got me. My wife was excited by the fact that I was spending the entire year in a hole. And she ended up seeing more blood in combat in her five years of stint in the Navy, treating Marines at St. Albans Hospital and wounded and tubercular, and then serving in an ER on the border between North Carolina and South Carolina, where the most patients at the ER were gunshot wounds. So I told her at one point, her job was bloodier than mine. Were there any challenging situations or decisions you had to make while you were in Vietnam that you'd be willing to share with our listeners? I think there are only two things that stand out. My main job was in the Fire Support Coordination Center, and basically that organization was supposed to provide fire support wherever it was needed from Corps, from Field Force. Remember one night I was sitting there, I had a staff of three plus myself, three enlisted, and we got a call from Zwan Lock, where an Arvin regiment and its advisory crew were under assault by a probably a, a VC battalion and a regiment, I should say. And they had gotten through the wire and they were kind of worried about their fate. So I went over to the G2 air and just by happenstance, he said to me, I got a spooky and I got a I got a puff the magic dragon we can send over there. And as a compliment, he, he said, I'll even let you listen. <laughs> and so he called this thing out, I guess it was from Tonsonute, and those things appeared up over Zwan Lock 
he put the audio on and I could hear the machine guns going and the Gatling guns going and so on. But they ended up catching the VC regiment in the wire or inside the compound and just about decimated the entire thing. So that was my basically one of my two contributions to the war effort. My other experience was one of the few times I got out of that great big hole I was in and I flew down by chopper to the Australians who were operating southeast of Saigon in the flats towards the ocean. And they asked me if I could get them a destroyer support fire. And I said, well, if you get me a target list, I'll get you the destroyer. So I went back up and called in. I guess I ended up getting two destroyers and they shot all, all the rounds they could shoot at the targets the Australians had provided. Of course, we never got a, we never got a result out of that one. But that was the sum in total, other than going back and forth to Benoit Air Base and reporting daily on rocket attacks on either our headquarters or the surrounding area. That's basically the way I spent the entire year. How, if at all, did your experiences in Vietnam influence you later as a military historian and researcher? I guess my entire military career, and Vietnam in particular, caused me to look when I did get into the war on the Eastern Front, German Eastern Front, when I got into the Soviet-German War, what astounded me was the millions of men lost and forgotten, forgotten Russian soldiers. And this, of course, is why I began my work on what I call forgotten battles, and that is the 60% of the war that the Russians, the Soviets, were covering up. And the casualty figures were appalling. And I realized I learned from basically requests from Russians that they had been working on this problem, that people in the local areas had been all throughout the Soviet Union had been trying to figure out what happened to Ivan or Igor or whoever who went off to war in 1941, 42 and 43 and never came back. And they began something called military archaeology, and it's still going today. And it began in 1943, where Military archaeologists, namely locals looking for the fate of their sons and daughters, went off to the battlefields as they were liberated by the Red Army and tried to go through trench lines and all sorts of areas just to find out if they could find some remnant of what happened to that son or daughter who'd gone missing in the war. And that, that tallies up to somewhere around out of the 14 million Soviet dead, probably as many as six million were simply forgotten and not recorded. To a soldier, that is a black mark you cannot ignore. And so that impelled me on, on my research, and that was to fill in as much of that 60% of the war that was missing as possible. And I did that basically from 19, the mid-1970s to present. And now that the records are out, it's taken basically 30, 35 years for the little warning I gave them, I was one of the first officers, was the first officer to visit the Soviet Union after the beginning of the Afghan war in 1979. I went over there as a member of a diplomatic exchange. And during the course of that meeting at the Academy of Sciences, the Russian Academy of Sciences, I can tell you later what I did there, but I, I caught their attention. And when I got their attention, I said, I announced that it's better to tell your history than have someone tell it for you. And it took until roughly 1999 for them to understand and act on that. We were talking offline about the availability, the access to the Soviet records, and that today, correct me if I'm wrong, today you've got greater access to those records than at any other point. Could you talk a little more about that? Yes. It's taken a long time to get that. And most of my work up through the 1970s, 
1980s for that matter, was done primarily through German documentation and what I could glean from Soviet books. Well, there were leaks as early as 1975. There were leaks of material that came back. Excuse me. I have a cat who's joining the meeting. (laughs) No problem, sir. Okay, I've got two cats that keep me entertained and relieve the boredom of this sort of work. (laughs) But anyway, uh, it was actually Putin himself who made the decision when he came in in 1999. I was persona non grata for five years, from 95 to 99, because I published the first of my forgotten battle books. I went on Operation Mars, and I let the publishers choose the title, and they chose the title Zhukov's Greatest Defeat, and that offended many Russians. But in 99, all of a sudden, I was surprised and got a note from University of Kansas Press that said, the Russians have asked us for rights to translate all of your books that we published. And I had published, by that time, a considerable series with the University Press of Kansas. And they said, how much should we charge them? And I said, nothing. Give them the books. They did that, and all of those were published between in Russian from 2000 to about 2005, and they didn't change a word in them. Basically, that was the indicator that Putin, who had just come into power, decided that that was it. He was going to lift the veil on World War II and release the Soviet records. Now, the actual release, I noticed after I finished my Stalingrad trilogy, and it's roughly 2014 or 15, I suddenly realized that. When you went on Russian websites, in particular, Pamyat Naroda RU, which is the Ministry of Defense record site, suddenly there were records appearing. And I did my book, another book on forgotten battles, the Belarusian Operation of 43, and discovered that they had mounted in there the front orders and front reports for the first 10 days of the operation. Now, I included those in the book. But I found out thereafter that not only had they included them all, a Russian contacted me and said, here's a search engine, a little formula that you can use to get access to all those records that are being put out. I thanked him. I put that on my computer and I've been using that ever since. And now it's gotten to the point where if you hit a date and a unit anywhere from front level down to separate brigade level, you will get not only the daily reports, the daily combat journals, but you'll get the daily operational summaries, as many as three per day, the daily combat reports that could be as many as seven or eight combat reports per day. And it's all there. It's all digitized and it it all pops up. And unless somebody blood all over it or spill soup on it, you can pretty much read it. Most of the material is typed, even for 41 and 42. And of course, if you get into cursive reports, then you've got to depend on the literacy of the Russian handwriting, basically, who wrote the reports. But it is staggering, and it must have taken 10 to 15 years to digitize that material. But the amount of material that's been digitized is would take an army of people 10 years to do. My concern is it's not being used and exploited now by us. As far as you can tell, has the war in Ukraine affected access? No. I was afraid when the uh, websites went down and communications broke off and the sanctions began that they would cut it. 
they did cut it about a year, about six months before the war began, before February mm -hmm. 2023. But that was because of a technical difficulty. It was out for about three months and then bang, it suddenly appeared again. And it's been on ever since. And I have had no difficulty whatsoever using the government website, Pamyat Naroda, or the Russian military. The main website is Yandex RU. And if you go into Yandex RU, you can call up by typing in Cyrillic on your computer the number of the unit and the abbreviation in Russian of the unit and put Voyavoy Put, which means combat path. You will get all the websites that have reports on those units. And you'll also get a link to Pamyat Naroda, which you can go into another kind of a back door where you can get the daily records from any given date and you can select the date you want the records from. Amazing. It's really, it's really, uh, when you compare it with our archives, they've done it with Germanic precision. <laughs> if we could get back to what got you to study the, the great patriotic war, yeah. was there a book you read, an encounter you had with somebody, an event you attended that led you to go, all right, this is something that I really want to delve into? Yes, and I'd cite two examples for you. The first is getting into the whole Russian area in the first place. And the credit for that goes to one of my professors at the University of North Carolina. I went there for a degree in modern European history. And as a part of that degree program, I took a course in Russian history simply because it was a curiosity to me and I hadn't heard much about Russian history. I took three semester courses with that particular professor. His name was Dr. Faust. And he was a fascinating lecturer. I wrote every word he spoke in class for basically two years. And when I came out of North Carolina, I said, okay, my, my master's was, my thesis was in the French election of 1923. I want to learn Russian because I want to get into Russian history. Now that stayed in the back of my mind. And of course, I came in the, the army, went to Germany, worked in a 155, eight inch self-propelled artillery battalion for three years, came back to the advanced course, and then went to Vietnam. Came back from Vietnam, and again, by this so-called fickle finger of fate, I ended up teaching at West Point for four years. And there's a story there that's interesting. All these stories caused me at about age 57 to say, you know, I ought to credit some of this to somebody besides myself, because you could not plan a career like mine. But in any case, I finished at West Point in 73, and I went to the Commanding General Staff College as a student, the advanced course. And while there, I said, you know, I have got to act on this. I don't want to spend my entire life as an artilleryman, not that I don't like artillery, but I was supposed to go. The assignment that I had been given when I returned from Vietnam was to go to teach artillery at the transport school at Fort Eustis. And I said, boy, that's going to be a thrill. In any case, I was saved by the bell by going to West Point. Spent four years there in the process. They said, you'll ruin your career because you're wasting time. And then went into the FAO program, Foreign Area Officer Program. And they sent me to language school at Monterey for a year. Not recommended for a 33-year-old, I'll guarantee you, because it's too late to learn a foreign language well. Then went to Garmisch, another garden spot for two years, where I learned more Russian and climb mountains, and then sent off to Heidelberg. And Heidelberg was the second place where I got into this business of Russian military. My job was to write an estimate of 
Warsaw Pact Soviet capabilities for USERA. That was the first job I had. The second job was to investigate the 11 February incident that had happened before I got there. That incident was a very interesting one where upwards of 150 Soviet tanks crossed into the neutral zone between the woods and the wall in the Folda Gap area and then disappeared back into the woods. And, and all of this came together. I was in the estimates section. We were required to report on both of those things. There was a young man there who'd been passed over for captain. And I guess was passed over several more times because he had the strange habit of reading Russian and reading Voyeno Istorichisky journal. That's their military historical journal. And people said, ah, that's a waste of time. I discovered by looking at what he had in his collection there that if you looked at those articles and the topics of those articles, you could divine what they were thinking about now. They were using the historical milieu to actually discuss current problems. To make a long story short, that helped me solve the problem of the 11th February incident. It caused me to take a fresh look at what they were doing in terms of GSFG and the forward groups and how they would operate in wartime. I wrote the new estimate. It took me about a year to do. I discovered in the process they hadn't done an estimate since 1955. They just changed the cover. <laughs> and the thing was completely obsolete. And I put together one that was fresh, that had short morning attacks in it, middle morning attacks, and a variety of things. That got me in trouble with DIA because they said, you can't do that. We're going to have 30 days of warning. And the commander of shape at the time, who wore two hats, I believe it was General Haig, said, hey, wait a minute, that's my estimate because I wear the shape hat and that's going to become the, the estimate for NATO. And so he vetoed in but in any case, the whole ball of wax there was that I ended up beginning my very rudimentary fashion, beginning my study of Soviet operational art tactics and strategy, and came to very different conclusions than the threat shops throughout the Army were coming to. I also opened up the use and utility of open sources, that is, Soviet writings themselves, what's in Voyenaya Misol, the General Staff Journal, which was classified at the time what's in Military Historical Journal, what was in all of the other journals they produced, because generally they use those journals to discuss current concerns within their own military. Now, third, what got me interested in, in doing actual hard research on Soviet military operations were the Japanese. When I left USARA, I came back to the Combat Studies Institute, a newly formed body, the first body that had been created in the Army to study historical trends that might have contributed to where we are today and might be of use in the future. I was the chief of research of Combat Studies Institute, and we got a request from the Japanese. It was a secret request because the Japanese self-defense couldn't hold open meetings on operational and strategic topics because it was a strictly defensive, tactically oriented defense force. We ended up holding three exchanges with them, four exchanges actually, two in Tokyo and two in the United States. And what we did is we exchanged what we'd like them to research and what they'd like us to research. Our list, of course, involved most of the Pacific Islands in, in World War II, how they operated, how they defended them. But the Japanese list was a laundry list of Russian topics, beginning with 
the Manchurian operation of August 45, the airborne experience, Soviet airborne use, and Soviet amphibious. And that, since I was the only Russian reader or speaker in Combat Studies Institute, I said, well, I'll take over that job and I'll begin my research on the Manchurian operation. And I spent about a year doing that. I ended up producing two Leavenworth papers on, we called it August Storm. There's a whole story about that one, too, because that was not the code name of the operation. It was the code name that my six-year-old daughter thought up when we were discussing around the kitchen table at Leavenworth, what should we call this book so that somebody will actually read it? other than the, the strategic offensive in Manchuria. And she said, why don't you call it August Storm? And we did. No kidding. That's right. Now, there's more to that story. and I don't want to get, digress off or get where I am. But sure. when the planning team went over to Saudi, went over, went over to, to Saudi Arabia before the Kuwait War, most of the planning team came from Leavenworth and included the faculty at the School of Advanced Military Studies. And they said, you've had Desert Shield <laughs> now we're going to call it Desert Storm. We're going to model it after August Storm, the Soviet offensive in Manchuria, which, of course, was not the, the true name for it, although the Russians even picked it up and used it in a couple of books. Okay. But that, that became the teaching volume for CGSC majors for the next, that was 1984 when I published it, for the next 15 years. And it, it actually gave rise to the use of the code name Desert Storm, because that was the name that they changed that operation into when they decided they'd do that huge left wheel through Iraq into Kuwait and liberate Kuwait. But anyway, that's off the topic. The Japanese were responsible for getting me into that. And when I did the, the Leavenworth papers on August Storm, I discovered that Soviet sources were decent. The 40% of what they had was pretty much on the mark. And we went to Japan and spent about a week with our Japanese speaker in GSI. And we, we interviewed veterans of that operation who were still alive. And we put together put together the August Storm books, the Leavenworth Papers, on the basis of that. But essentially, the Japanese should get credit for everything I've done ever since, because I moved on then to the War College and walked into a situation where I was being assigned to the Center for Land Warfare, which was going to be a a red-blue type organization that worked out doctrinal, strategic, operational themes for the U.S. Army based on, in reflection of, things that the Soviets were working on. And I was the head of the Soviet cell. Well, that died very quickly. The commandant who envisioned that left. And the commandant who came in said, we're going to waste our time on writing stuff. And so I had to basically find a, a different project. And I picked up what I call the Art of War Symposium which was going to be a one-year confab between veterans of World War II, the Germans and Americans, at the War College to discuss operations for a day. And I said, let's do it for a week and do it focused on three operations each year in depth and bring in German veterans from those operations, and I'll do the Soviet side. And uh, that got me ever more deeper into this business of historical research and ultimately into writing books about it. So basically, that's a long answer to your short question. What were your influences? Professor Faust at UNC, the poor passed over captain in USARA headquarters, descent, and the Japanese when they uh, decided that they needed research done on the, on, like the Soviet operations toward Japan. 
Absolutely fascinating. If we could talk a little more about these Art of War symposia, so that ran from 84 to 86, you're bringing yes. in- Well, actually it went to 84 to 87 because uh-huh. I tried to continue the process at Fort Leavenworth when I took over the Soviet Army Studies Office and we did it for one year there. And you're bringing in German vets. So are these- Yeah, I began with, oh, what is his name? University of Minnesota- my colleague there was a retired historian, marvelous historian, and his name skips me right now, the University of Minnesota professor who, back in the 20s and 30s, 1920s and 30s, went over and interviewed the German general staff from World War I, believe it or not. And then in World War II, went over and interviewed many of the senior German leaders and, and had a a marvelous collection in his cellar. I don't know whatever happened to that collection of interviews with those people. But in any case, he had organized the one-day operation, and he had invited in Melantin. We all know General Melantin and Panzer leader. He invited in General von Kielmanseg, the man who's, who had operated in the German Eastern headquarters. And he brought in General von Sanger, who I became okay. a personal friend of, whose father had commanded 17th Panzer Division, and von Sanger had been high in the NATO ranks, von Sanger and Etterwin to be proper. Mm-hmm. So basically, the first year we had about seven or eight very senior, very high-ranking, and very prestigious generals who were there. And for them, it was an education because they had never heard the Soviet side of the war. And when I started dragging out what I had researched, they began shaking their head and say, oh, that's what happened. <laughs> and so it was interesting to watch. The second year and the third year, I picked operations in 44 and 45. And there I tried to target the participants. I said, I want a battalion commander out of a puncher division. I want this. I want that. And I tried to key him to the operations we were going to study. And it worked very well. The third year, we did it again, and this time I tried to bring in a former Soviet veteran, and we actually did bring in one or two, but these were once the CIA had surfaced here, and were basically using name to plumes, false names, and they brought them in there, and they participated. Most of them had been rank-and-file soldiers. But in any case, that was a very, very interesting thing. And and I'll tell you, one little vignette here that, that I think made an impact. I did all my research on ozolid paper. You know what ozolid is? It's a machine that reproduces blueprints, huge blueprints, probably 10 feet by 10 feet. And what I did was I created a base map for each of the offensives, for each of the operations we studied. I did a base and then copied them on an ozolid machine. And on each for each day of the operation, I put a frontline trace and the units on both sides. In other words, the complete order of battle insofar as I could reconstruct it. And it was accurate on the German side and about, I'd say, about 70% accurate on the Soviet side. But these things were, were massive. And I used them in the symposium. And I also had made copies of some of those big collections of maps. The one on Belarusia went something like one page per day, and it ran for 63 days. <laughs> if you rolled it up, it, it required a large tube to carry it. When I went to Moscow in 87, as the only military member of the diplomatic delegation, I put one of those copies of the Belarusian operation in my suitcase. No mean task, I'll tell you. <laughs> and I carried it over there, 
and took it with me under my arm into the session. And if you know, if you've been to a Russian conference, it's held in a huge hall. This was the Academy of Sciences. There's a huge uh, square room with tables mounted in square fashion where the speaker is at the middle of one of those sides. And then they have work tables behind you. Well, the side of the, the side of the hall I was sitting on had work tables behind me. On my right was a Belarusian delegation of three or four from the Belarusian Academy of Sciences. And they were all dressed in, in their, their rather baggy Soviet suits. And they had medals down their chests and so on and so forth from the war. During the tea break, and they always have tea breaks, I stood up, took my roll of maps and unfurled them on the table behind me. And I didn't say anything at all. I just stood there. And the Belarusian group had to go by the table to get to the tea. And they noticed these sheets. And they noticed the configuration of the land. And since they're from Belarusia, they knew the shape of Belarusia. And they started turning the sheets. And they said, oh, my God. Of course, Parushki. Oh, my God. Look at this stuff. What are you? you? And when I came back with my tea and my biscuits that I had, uh, they were there. They brought in others. And they were all running around it kind of excited and saying, we must have these right now, right now. We must have these right now. We must take them upstairs and copy them. I don't know how they were going to copy an Oslin page, but I said, well, no, don't worry about it. I'm leaving this. I'll leave this behind with the Academy of Science. And they said, no, you don't understand. We'll never see it. <laughs> and so I said, well, okay, well, there it is. I'll leave it in the tape. You can do what you wish with it. But that was shortly before the session ended in, in our closing remarks is when I said it is better to tell your own history than have someone tell it for you. And that marks the beginning of this process, painful process of opening the Soviet archives. Yeah. Now, I've taken you way away from your question. That's OK. So, no, sir, you can back. you can digress in whatever direction you want. I, I, I think it's really fascinating to hear these vignettes and get your your thoughts on these things. What was it like? hearing from and interacting with these German commanders, how forthcoming were they about their mistakes, about their deficiencies? Because I know in many of the memoirs from people like Guderian and von Manstein, many of the senior leaders, German leaders will point to Hitler as, well, this is why we lost or yeah. here's, here's uh, uh, why we failed. Apologias, yes. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So, were you were you encountering the same thing from these German officers in the symposium or the symposia? If not, what were they saying about their performance? It was rather interesting to see von Kilmenseg, who had been a junior staff officer in OKH East. He was fascinated. He said, "Oh, I wish my father could have seen this." And this kind of echoed all of them. If we had known all of this was going on, it would have answered a lot of the, the questions we had at the time. And we just, you know, especially as you get toward 44 and 45, when deceptions began, major deceptions, and, and the Germans didn't know what they were going to be hit by. And German intelligence was failing, and, and they didn't have the, the accuracy that, that it had in the first two years of the war. General von Melenten was interesting because General von Melentin, of course, had done his book, Ponds of Battles. I've read it. Everybody's read it that's mm -hmm. interested in the war. And in particular, the chapter on State Farm 79 and the fighting along the Chur River. I can use this as an example of what's, what's happened. At the time, his account was a little suspect because some of the Soviet accounts tended to belittle the operations along the Chur and, and render them insignificant. But what we did know by that time is that 
the 11th Panzer Division, which he commanded, and which did so well along the Chur by stopping the Soviet 1st Tank Corps and the Soviet 5th Mechanized Corps, obliterating the latter, actually, looked like a signal victory. But what became apparent from my studies for the symposium was it was a Pyrrhic victory because the relief attempt being mounted by Monstein involved 48th Panzer Corps, whose nucleus was 11th Panzer Division, coming from west of Stalingrad, and the 57th Panzer Corps coming up from Kotelnikova, southwest of Stalingrad. And the Soviets knew they just finished Operation Uranus, they'd encircled 6th Army, and they knew that a relief attempt, if made quickly and effectively, could change the whole, the whole what they, they wanted to see, the destruction of 6th Army. And so what they did was they ordered the 1st Tank Corps and the 5th Mechanized Corps, which was brand new, to go across the Chur, and their sole mission was to tie down the 11th Panzer and prevent it from going across the Don River at, at Richkovsky into a little bridgehead the Germans held, and move on Stalingrad. Now, the 1st Tank Corps got bloody. You realize now, we knew, knew then, that the tank corps had begun the Stalingrad offensive with roughly uh, 180 tanks, and it had three left at the end of the offensive, even though it had successfully reached the Chur and helped in the encirclement of 6th Army. It rose in strength from three to about 45 tanks by the time that they ordered it to cross the Chur and attack 11th Panzer Division, or it actually attacked the German infantry defending that Panzer, the Panzer Division would have to say. And we also know that the 5th Mechanized Corps came down west of the river with over 200 tanks and lost about 180 of them in five or six days of fighting. But the net result of all of that was the 11th Panzer Division could never mount its attack across the Don River towards Stalingrad from the west. And when it got to a point later in December that it could, the Soviets had actually eliminated the German bridgehead at Richkovsky with another tank corps, the 7th, and had taken Verkhnychersky and Nizhnychersky, which rendered that entire arm of Monstein's relief effort superfluous. So what Melanton hadn't known was that. He knew he made a great victory. He knew he destroyed hundreds of Soviet tanks. He knew his tank, his Panzer division, fell from about, about 65 tanks to about 35 tanks in the process of those battles. But he didn't know that he was supposed to be the heart of that relief effort, and he didn't know that the Soviets had taken, well, they knew they took Richkovsky, but he'd always wondered since why he didn't get to take part in the relief of Stalingrad. So, see, they're all learning something. They're all learning something, and they're all going, you know, kind of hitting their foreheads and saying, oh, my gosh, I, I don't remember that, Yeah, and so on and so forth. As you get later in the war, when I had targeted participants who were in this battalion or that battalion, and I had a chief of intelligence who worked in the intelligence shop of one of the defending German armies in Vistula Oder, they said, now we know, now we know, now we know, now we know it was a hopeless cause. We, we were going to lose it. Right? Mm -hmm. So it was an education for the German officers, and I made many close friends there. And as a matter of fact, I ended up speaking at the Führings Academy, which was the first time a Western officer had spoken on an operational theme, kind of reflection of what I'd seen in Japan. Yeah. And the one I spoke on was a safe operational theme. It was Monstein's counteroffensive at the end of in January and February 43. Mm -hmm. The Art of War symposiums were very, very interesting. I tried to continue them 
at the War College. They didn't want any part of it because it was a hell of a logistical task on them. And the War College was a golfing institution more than anything else. And it bothered the administration there. And I said, I'm getting the hell out of here the first opportunity. And when the chief of staff of the Army decided he wanted a shop out in Kansas, which is where we recommended it be put, that could do open source analysis, I volunteered to become its co-director with Bruce Menning, who was the civilian co-director, mm-hmm. and went out there in 86 and did that. Just a, a quick point of clarification, sir. You mentioned that Melanson was the commander of 11th Panzer. Was that was that Herman Balk? Balk was the commander. That was 48th Panzer Corps. Yeah. Okay, got it. I'd like to ask a few questions about doctrine, operational level of war, operational art. Yeah. And I've heard you say elsewhere that you know there are differences in how the U.S. Army and the Soviets define doctrine. Could you describe the differences between how those two organizations view, understand doctrine? Sophistication is the single word that divides the two. The Russians, the Soviets, I should say, in the Soviet system, everything has to be scientific. You know, it's one of the rudimentary bases of scientific socialism. And hence, they quantify, they over-quantify everything. They systematize everything. And so they define everything. And hence, their definitions turn out to be much more sophisticated, much more, not, not necessarily effective, mm-hmm. but U.S. military doctrine. I have been in, I was in the Army 30 years and six months and could have continued on had I not decided to get the hell out of town for very good reasons. We won't get into that today. Military doctrine is very loosely defined in U.S. terminology. And I'm not even sure how you define it other than the way you conduct a war and hopefully win a war. In the Soviet system, they have got it down. Military doctrine is what you must do to ensure the security of the state. It's got a military technical and a political aspect to it. And it's much more sophisticated. And therefore, it's it's divided into military art and military science. And military art is divided into strategy, operational art, and tactics. And this is alien to Western traditions because up until very recently, the mid-1980s for that matter, maybe the mid-19, yeah, mid-1980s, we were still looking at the Jominian term, strategy, getting to the battlefield, and tactics, fighting the battle. The Soviets had long abandoned that, and they began, based on some of their pre-Soviet research, they began to talk about levels of war, modern war being far more complicated than the levels of previous wars, and came up with the matrix strategy, operational art, and tactics. Tactics takes the steps from which operational leaps are assembled, strategy points out the path. That is the definition that Svetchin put out in 19, Svetchin, Alexander Svetchin put out in 1924. And it was essentially a amalgamation of what had been thought of earlier in the late 1800s and would become the rather rigid Soviet definitions after the Stalinist period in the 1930s. Uh, my own opinion is that, yes, modern operations are too complicated to uh, be conducted using the old strategy and tactics thing, matrix, and you do need an, there is an operational level. And, and basically, that little quote by Svetchin points it out. You cannot do something big and win a war now in one fell swoop, a la 
plan 17 or, or, or whatever plan you have during World War One. You can't do that. You have to have an operational level in between. And it's not just who you move where. It's, it's how you mobilize and move forces. Again, I go back to stretching. Tactics takes the steps from which operational leaps are assembled and strategy points out the path. Take Barbarossa. Plan Barbarossa. It had the tactics and it had the strategic end, although it was a poorly defined strategic end. Take Moscow and get to the Urals, period. And if you look closely at Barbarossa unfold, you'll see that by the end of the first two weeks of the war in early July, the Germans have suddenly realized that we can't do these operational leaps. We can't drive so far and then stop and, and win a victory. We need something in between. We need a phased sort of operation, and that's the operational level. I noticed one of your questions was, what's the difference between operational art and the operational level? The operational level is where you're operating at, and the operational art is the skill of the commander who's trying to do it. And if he's not an artist, if he's not capable of doing it, and this is like chess, I use that analogy. Chess, Russian chess, is the way they look at war, whereas we look at it as checkers. Hmm. And checkers is strategy and tactics. Chess is strategy, operational art, and tactics. And that pretty much, to me, has summed up the difference. So basically, the operational level is needed. It, it should be understood as well. But every situation changes, and it changes over time. And this is why when you get into Soviet parlance, an airborne division was labeled a, an operational, strategic operational and tactical organization. Why? Because if you're using it to seize the capital of a foreign country like Kabul, Afghanistan, it becomes strategic. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. so there's, a, there's a great deal of, of, of relativism in, in it. Yeah. I have not read the book you you mentioned I should read, but if his conclusion is that the operational level is superfluous, I, I would strongly disagree with it. So if we could talk a little more about operational art, the operational level of war, this comes from an email exchange that, that we had years ago. And, and you wrote, yeah. when I returned to Leavenworth in 1986 <laughs> as director of the new Soviet Army Studies Office, our primary mission was to provide a Soviet perspective to those writing U.S. Army doctrinal manuals. I can yes. recall Lieutenant Colonel Don yes. Holder, who wrote the new right. 100-5 manual on operations, stopping by my office and informing me, quote, although we do not fully understand all of its ramifications, we have added the concept of the operational level, and in parentheses, operational art, to the manual, like running a flag up a flagpole to see who will salute. Yep. That's At the right. least it will generate a beneficial discussion. So could you talk about the the Army's decision to include both operational level, operational art, without fully understanding it, and what the potential consequences of that were? Well, you see, boy, what was the date of that the, account the, you had? So I've got 1986 as that being the time yeah. when you returned to uh, Lebanon. Yeah, okay. And now you got to understand what happened. There were fundamental changes that took place between 1986 and 1993. Right. And I'm not going to get into them in great detail because I don't want to get up on my soapbox. And, (laughs) oh, someone's got to do it. We ran it up the flagpole because we thought it was of use and utility. 
But shortly after that happened, we ended up with the discussions and the handshake, the handshake that ended the Cold War, which was unanticipated by anyone. The Reagan-Gorbachev handshake. And then that was followed quickly by the collapse of the Soviet Union. And during that period, almost everything that was done for the previous 20 years was about to be cast out the window and lost. We never really developed. Yes, there, there were the biggest consequence of that whole decision to run operational art and operational level up through the manuals was suddenly Americans, American writers, and there are several whose names I forget, but who tried to say, no, no, the U.S. created operational art. It was back in the Civil War, blah, 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 blah. Because Sherman was an operational artist. He knew what to do. And Aaron, so did Grant. But we never formulated the three levels back then. And we hadn't formulated the three levels now very well, because here's 1986 and, and the whole Cold War is about to end. And with it, most of the one of the ironies of the Cold War was airland battle which I know because I was there, was founded upon an erroneous project sold by BDN to the commander of USERA called the Echelonment Study, which was basically a picture of the Red Army in the, in the Soviet Army of the 1950s, became the baseline for airland battle. And we did that at a time when the Soviets had dropped the Echelonment concept of the 19. 50s and 60s, and had gone to the new Ugarkov model of a strategic theater offensive, which was wholly different, which recognized the fact that what was out of date in their old system was the Esalamid. Hmm. Here we are operating to counter it, and they're abolishing it. And we never picked that up. And what the new concept Ugarkov surfaced was, was the use of return to the mobile warfare of World War II and the use of operational maneuver and tactical maneuver by mobile groups. They call them now operational maneuver groups and tactical maneuver groups to preempt the enemy's use of nuclear weapons by moving the forces so quickly into the enemy's dispositions you can't use them. That was the whole basis for it. Hmm. And it rendered it rendered airland battle absolutely flawed. And of course, luckily, we never had to find that out. Now, the, the Russian army that emerged from the 1990s was a Russian army that took the lower level of Ogarkov's proposal, what you do with tactical maneuver, and it made that the major maneuver means of the Russian Federation, battalion groups and the brigade groups. What they're doing right now with Ukraine is having made a major mistake with assuming the Ukrainians would collapse immediately with a show of force, and they didn't collapse. And now Putin is trying to go back and take the pages out of what was done in World War II by Stalin and recreate the mobile forces and recreate the heavy forces and recreate the capability of conducting operational maneuver. And it may take a while for him to do it. And with it will probably be the creation of new operational maneuver groups that can benefit from blasting from the holes blasted through enemy defenses by artillery. But in, in any case, th there is continuity there. And, uh, and the point you were, you were getting at in the first place, what did we do with operational level of war? We kind of chucked it after the, the late, in the late 1980s, mm -hmm. after trying to claim that we, we did it ourselves. 
we basically chucked it and lost our way and it ended up mired in the Middle East. So the Soviets invent the, the concept of the operational maneuver group, correct? Yeah, the operational maneuver group is a modern version of the Soviet mobile group, which were the separate tank and mechanized corps and the tank armies. And they operated at every level, front level, army level, and corps level. And eventually they operated at division level and they had tactical maneuver groups in the shape of forward detachments, which became the battalion tactical groups. I was just going to say, so the, the first test, and again, correct me if I'm wrong at any point, the first test of an OMG is group pop-off. Is that correct? No. Okay. So do, where did the Soviets first put these ideas to the test against the Germans? Okay. In World War II, in World War II they lost their entire mechanized force, their tank force in 1941. It just went by the boards. They knew what they wanted to do. They couldn't do it. And the Germans basically destroyed what they did create. And they destroyed them handily. I mean, the, the Soviets have always had, Russians have always had problems with initial period of wars. And you can go back to Manchuria in, in, in the 1890s. You can look at World War I. You can look at World War II. They have done miserably in initial periods of war. So badly that they're paranoid about it. And that became a, a whole field of study in, during the Cold War. The initial period of war. I got book after book on the initial period of war because we must not let this happen again. Well, Putin let it happen again. Putin let it happen because his intelligence misled him about whether the Ukrainians could stand up or not. And he wasn't ready for war. He, he, was, he was ready for a, for a parade across Red Square with tanks. And that parade became bogged down on the, on the roads north of Kiev and became bogged down everywhere. And he didn't have large forces that could overcome small Ukrainian strong points because the battalion groups and brigade groups were brittle. And they had no, no sustaining capability because they had no logistics. And the commanders were bewildered by it. Went out forward and tried to fix things and got killed by you know, army commanders. You saw the list getting killed. Mm -hmm. It was a disaster. And it was a typical Russian beginning period of war and so he's gone back to the drawing boards now and he's trying to change things and whether he can or not is, is i won't predict anymore because we're on unpredictable ground mm -hmm. and that's dangerous ground too when do the soviets test the okay in world war ii i, I got off the topic again. no worries no worries yeah in late 1941 they inherently know that you've got to have something. If you're going to ever conduct offensives, you've got to have something that can go deep into the enemy rear and attack his supplies and cut his lines of communications. And all they have by the end of the year are cavalry corps. This is why the cavalry corps, Stalin likes them anyway, because he loved them in the Civil War. But in any case, they had the cavalry corps because they, they kind of upset the Germans. They get places the Germans don't expect they can get. And when German tanks freeze and stick in the snow, like the horses don't. They continue to go. And so they rely on, on cavalry corps, seven or eight of them, throughout the winter of 1941. But come spring 42, the Russians very quickly recreate tank corps. This is what I'm doing in the project I'm working on now. They begin creating them in March and April. They create about 20 of them initially. They test a new combination of what, what do you put in a tank corps and generally they're tank heavy and don't have adequate infantry they will use them in operation blau the germans try to do in blau what they did in barbarossa and that is destroy the entire soviet tank force they, they really do just 
almost destroy most of those cores. But the Soviets managed to get some of them out and they start refurbishing them again. They start refurbishing them with larger amounts of T-34s and so on, although the T-34 is not the ideal tank that the history has portrayed it as because you ought to look at the losses on it. It was a very fragile weapon with a lousy transmission and engine. In any case, now they also raise a tank army. They raise four tank armies in July 42. And the tank armies now are test armies. And they have two tank corps, sometimes three tank corps, and they have a cavalry corps. In it. And they lose the first and the fourth tank army on the, in the Great Bend of the Don on the road to Stalingrad. It's, it's pretty much cremated and disappears back into the Soviet rear. They begin creating in September mechanized corps that are far better balanced. They have more tanks than tank corps, but they also have three motorized rifle brigades that have a lot of infantry and that protect the tanks. They mount the Stalingrad operation with, with basically one of their old model tank armies. Tank uh, army has got two tank corps, a cavalry corps, and a bunch of rifle divisions. That's foot, wheel, and hoof all fighting together. And you can imagine what it is to try to come in and control one. But they find out in those operations at Stalingrad that 10 days of operations, the tank corps loses 80% of its tanks, mostly to mechanical problems. And so they encircle 6th Army at Stalingrad, and they begin in the winter of 42-43 to test a new tank army and to equip their tank corps with something more, now, something more fitting for the battlefield and more sustainable. The trouble is that they've lost so many tanks in the Stalingrad counteroffensive, Operation Uranus, and the Germans have cut much of their fuel supplies to uh, Baku in the Transcaucasus that they're running out of certain types of fuel that they need to run the tanks, in particular, second sort fuel, which they can't get. Now, what Stalin does is he takes, once he has ensured the Germans aren't going to relieve 6th Army, now he will take every tank and mech corps he can get his hands on, regardless of their strength, and send them all on offensive operations along with the leg infantry in two or three fronts. It's a risky thing. It's a go-for-broke thing because he's convinced himself the Germans are about to break. What results from that is Group Popoff. Group Popoff has got four tank corps in it. The overall strength of Group Popoff at the beginning is about 60 tanks overall. Its only good tank corps is the 4th Guards Tank Corps. The old 17th, it's just during the, the number of 4th Guards. And 4th Guards doesn't even have one of its tank brigades. They have no tanks for that, and they leave it behind. The exploitation force of Group Popoff is going nowhere. The exploitation force, that's the uh, Southwestern Front's First Guards Army. The Southwestern Front's Third Guards Army, which also had a bunch of tank corps and mech corps, their average corps numbers five tanks to ten tanks each. They're going nowhere. Nevertheless, they order Popoff to go through the German ranks, drive its way to, I won't get into place names, but drive its way into the Soviet rear. And then they've got two fresh tank corps, 1st Guards Tank Corps and 25th that had been destroyed earlier, worn out and then filled up. And they're going to exploit to the Dnieper with these two corps. Those two corps only have about, about 80 tanks each. When they conduct those attacks, and I've got a book on it that I haven't gotten produced because it's got all the records, but not the narrative. 
this Donbass offensive is really their grand offensive to end the war. And it's codenamed Bolshoi Saturn, Great Saturn, I've discovered, which is the successor of Little Saturn, which they'd hoped to conduct before the Germans did a relief attempt towards Stalingrad. But in any case, Bolshoi Saturn is a grossly inflated mission assigned to the basically three fronts conducting it. They have hardly any armor whatsoever. Their logistics are almost non-existent. They have no replacements because the replacements are going to Stalingrad, to the Don Front encircling Stalingrad, and they're conducting this whole thing on a on a shoestring. And that is what runs into SS Panzer Corps that Hitler sends to the Eastern Front in mid-February 1943, and it collapses the entire Soviet offensive like a house of cards. Thereafter, the Soviets pre-Kursk, pre-summer of 43, recreate their tank armies, recreate their tank and mech corps, add self-propelled artillery to those mobile corps, add several new tank armies, make the tank armies all mobile instead of hoof, foot, and track. And yet, and even in summer of 43, there's a desperation driving the Soviets because they've never stopped a German strategic offensive. And if you look at the campaign in the summer, their losses are absolutely catastrophic in armor, manpower, and resources. It's only after Kursk, it's only in the fall of 1943 that you see the Soviets putting together the training institutions for tank drivers, the training institutions for mortarmen, the training institutions for tank gunners, and all the things you need to have for these organizations to operate effectively. There's a thorough change in the school system between roughly August and November 1943. And for the first time in the war, they start pulling out tank and mechanized corps well before they've been destroyed and give them at least two months to get prepared for future combat. And all that will show in 44 and 45. I think that's a good jumping off point for some questions on the concept of learning lessons. I think you're not a fan of the term lessons learned. You see that as superficial. If that is correct, could you talk about that is, why? That, that, that is precisely what, I, what you've quoted me. My yeah. mind. So if you would tell us why you don't like that term. It's, it's a term that's used throughout the West. It's certainly used in the Army. It's used in the Marine Corps, the other services. Why don't you like the term lessons learned? Because I've watched it used when I was at CSI, Combat Studies Institute, and when I was at the Soviet Army Studies Office, and when we changed this name to the Foreign Military Studies Office two years later, I watched. My, our main competitors were the threat shops and the descents, and they were lessons learned prone. First off, they didn't have Russian many Russian speakers in them. They couldn't read the original Russian, and what they would glean out of particular operations were, we need 10 lessons out of this operation. Would you please write them down on the pad for me so we can put them in our lessons learned? It was superficial. It didn't really tie the lessons might be on this or that or the other thing, and there's no systematizing of it. And you'll see what I mean when you get to the Soviet system for lessons learned. Now, they don't, <laughs> the other pensions is lessons aren't learned oftentimes because people won't learn them. And this is a given for both sides. And obviously, the Russians didn't learn a lot of lessons when they went into the Donbass region because I've got all the documents by those tank and mech command, actually by all the commanders who operated in that Donbass region, 
And you don't conduct major military operations in the Donbass if you hope to be successful. I mean, it's, it's just terrible country, terrible tank country, for example. And our, our intel says, hey, good tank country. Look at that. No trees. <laughs> they don't notice the frogs in the Balkans, the, the ravines and gullies everywhere that are instant anti-tank positions. But any, in any case, the, the Russians have, a, have had a system and they, they weren't, the, the Soviets weren't the ones who devised it. This system has been around since Tsarist times. It has a formal structure, the Directorate for the Study of War Experience in the General Staff. And that directorate for the study of war experience is responsible for putting out studies of all operations, military operations conducted. And it's got a, a subdivision in the front headquarters. It's got a subdivision in the army headquarters. And if you look at the army and front records, you will see periodically messages going out. Where is your war experience volumes from the operation you conducted? Third Army conducted from April to May of 44. And, and what's good about the war experience is, is that they also benefit by something called socialist criticism. And this is also driven by ideology. And that is, if you're a scientific socialist, you better operate scientifically. And if you criticize, you better criticize what needs criticism or it won't get better. This is why many of those war experience volumes that fell into our hands through German intelligence in the war, which I've used for years, are windows on what's really taking place out there. And I've got in my cellar a collection of, I guess, about 68 volumes of Soviet war experiences. Some are collections of materials. Others are studies of major operations. Others are entire books, the book on Moscow and the book on Belarusia and the book on Berlin are three volumes each, numbering 500 pages per volume. That's the quantity of material in there. I mean, it is exhaustive stuff. And of course, you got to use it if it's going <laughs> to be effective. And they've done it. This is nothing new. I got them on the Spanish Civil War, where they did the same thing. I've got it for the Civil War, some smattering of documents, but I don't have, don't have a big collection on that. But I've got them on World War II, and it is. We, we were offered at, at Fort Leavenworth when we were the Foreign Military Studies Office, the uh, Soviet artillery school, the Russian artillery school, offered us their entire collection of war experiences, numbering something like 120 volumes. And we didn't have a budget. We could, it was some ridiculous number. $1,000 will do. Keep us in coffee. <laughs> we couldn't do it because we didn't have enough money. But anyway, it just shows you the difference in approach. Theirs is comprehensive, ongoing, and systematized, and brutally critical of mistakes when they're made, to the extent of saying, so-and-so did this. I just read one on the commander of 13th Tank Corps in 1st Tank Army in the battle in the Stalingrad front, which is sent out front to halt the Germans advancing on Stalingrad. The 13th Tank Corps leads its tanks into battle direct to, to rescue the encircled division of the 6th Army in the Great Bend of the Don. And it loses something like 85 of its 125 tanks. And out in the field, there is a, a general staff officer. These are assigned to all headquarters, and they're responsible to the general staff officer 
in the commiss- uh, and the military commissar of the army or the front. In other words, this guy's out there reporting on folks. And he puts a scathing report in on Colonel Tanishishin, the corps commander, and says he's just totally ineffective. He has no command and control. He inflates the numbers of losses on the German side. And he gives an example. The German 14th Panzer lost seven tanks, and he said he destroyed 46. I mean, this stuff is brutally frank. Now, Tanishishin remains around, and he remains commander of 13th Tank Corps until it becomes a guards tank corps, and he's killed in the Yashikishin offensive of 1945, and he was a good commander. He was just so damn green in uh, July of 42. <laughs> so anyway, I'm digressing off the war experience thing, but theirs is comprehensive and systematic, and ours is, see, we got to do something. Let's do this. If we could return to this idea of very frank criticism and the, the socialist critique or socialist criticism. We have nothing like that in principle, the, the concept of calling a spade a spade, assigning blame. We've got nothing oh, I like know. that. I, uh, but Why but is that the case? We're even worse. For example, the Russians came out with a book, the Russian Center for the Study of Strategy and Tactics. Anyway, Ruslan Pukov is, is the head of CAST, and CAST and I have a contact relationship where we've supported them and they've supported us. They came out with a study of the Georgian War, right, when they came in and took southern Ossetia so quickly. And they'd already experimented with the brigade groups and battalion groups, and Yeltsin had done it in first Chechnya, and it was a complete abortion. It just didn't work. It was awful. Nothing worked. Putin went in and cleaned that up in the second Chechen War. And that's why you find no book written on it until about a year or so ago, because it was all undercover. But he came up with a solution for cleansing Chechnya. And this third war in Georgia was a textbook operation. And the battalion brigade groups worked beautifully. Now, we looked at the damn book and said, oh, geez, they screwed that up royally. They had this problem, that. Yeah, they listed all the problems. But it was done very, very successfully. In our army... And I think this is quite natural, actually. Covering one's butt is (laughs) critical. We don't keep records. I don't remember records from Vietnam. I don't remember combat records. I don't know if they did it in the Gulf War or not. But the kind of records where all the reports are put together, I don't think that's done in our army anymore. If you don't keep the reports together, how can you critique an operation? You really can't very well. I've seen the German archives. They don't open them very easily because we've given them all back. But I've seen how they organized things, and they organized them quite well. They basically documented their disaster at the end of the war. I've seen some U.S. records from the war, a lot of them put together by the divisions themselves and the divisions veterans associations. But I go back to my experience in Vietnam, and I don't know if any records were being kept. Anybody keeping track of all this stuff? I don't think so, to be honest, because command historians found in divisions in our, wherever the hell they're found in our army, aren't like the directorate and the section and the department for the study of war experiences and for collecting the archival. But I don't think we, we take care of the archival material. Yeah. I just offer a few observations, responses. I think, in fact, I was just talking to Dr. Eric Villard yesterday, who's a military historian, Vietnam specialist at Center for Military History. and. There are plenty of records associated with 
unit and formation activities in Vietnam, I don't think to your point that they're nearly as comprehensive or critical as what the Soviets kept, what they maintained. And I think as you go forward, the quality of the records decreases. Certainly, if you look at the last 20 years with the global war on terror, the record keeping done by many Marine and army units, I think has been abysmal. And much of that has been lost because it was digital. And you would think, well, if it's digital, then you know it's saved somewhere. But a lot of times these units are wiping their hard drives or I not. Know. Right. So so I guess I'm I'm trying to to straddle the middle where I do think that, and I can't speak for the command you served with in, in Vietnam, but I do think that the record keeping then was better than what we have now, but I don't think it was nearly as, as exhaustive as what you're describing with the Soviets and not nearly as frank. I think there is a, yeah, it, maybe it's human nature. Maybe it's part of the culture of the U.S. Armed Forces where criticism is not, it's it, not it offered. Will, yeah. It will reflect. And yeah. therefore you're hesitant. I remember when I was told when I was the property book officer in the 24th Infantry Division in Germany in 1967, and all the officers had been sent to Vietnam, and we had six officers in the battalion. And it was just, it, the, whole, the whole battalion didn't work, artillery battalion. And I remember I was the, I wore six hats, headquarters, service battery commander, supply officer, maintenance officer, G2, S2, and several other hats too. I've forgotten there's a damn yeah. many of them. But I remember I, we had all of our 155s and we had four 8-inch guns, right? They're all nuclear. And 70% of our stuff didn't work. So I wrote it on our, our damn report, equipment report. And the, basically the battalion was not combat ready by far. And the XO came down to me and said, you'll fix that. You put that back up. We can't do that. That's awful. And I said, sir, that's what it is. You want it changed, you change it. And I went home and told my wife, you better, we start, better start packing for at two. <laughs> You're about to get reassigned. Well, it turned out that I got the best efficiency report I'd ever gotten from the guy. Really? And he said, geez, she's honest. <laughs> so, <laughs> but that mentality, if you don't make your unit look good, or if you criticize it, it's going to reflect, does inhibit. On the other hand, here's a criticism of Colonel Tanishishin that says he's an absolute incompetent. Does that reflect on Tanishishin? Right. No, no. He, he ends up a pretty damn good tank corps, corps commander until he's killed. You mentioned that there's this practice of the socialist critique in, yes. in the Red Army and in the Soviet Army. But they're also, tell me if I'm wrong, offering or expecting these critiques out of necessity because of the Soviet Union is in a life and death struggle with the Germans. And you can't, you really can't hide. And they need to have honest assessments, honest judgments, or at least, you know, honest in the, in the eyes of those offering it, because we only got so much space and the URLs are to our back. Exactly. Yeah. Right. So it, would you just talk a little bit about that, where the honesty is partly a function of necessity? Well, it certainly is. That part's right. But you got to set that against the backdrop of what happened to the officers' corps in the 1930s, late yeah. 1930s, where, where where so many were purged, and and th there's a nasty nasty ripple of that through. That uh, Zhukov is 
rises up because who is he fingered in the process of rising? That's an unanswered question that, that uh, I'm curious about. There was a Stalin in the Russo-Finnish War, the Finnish War, when two divisions are destroyed in the Finnish forest north of Suomi. The commander of that army is General Chuikov. Corps, I'm sorry, the Corps is, is a guy named Chuikov. Orders come down from Moscow. You lost two divisions. What the hell are you doing about it? Chuikov lines up the surviving staff officers of those divisions and several of his corps staff officers and has them shot on the spot in his headquarters. Wow. Chuikov himself ends up, having done that, ends up in Mongolia as attaché to Ulaanbaatar. He's not brought back until 1942, and guess where he's brought back to? Stalingrad, right? He's given 64th Army. Yeah. At Stalingrad, and then he gets 62nd Army in Stalingrad, and he fights the army down to a handful. So there is this, every Soviet commander's got in his mind, can I go ahead and admit this thing was a disaster and I lost such and such, or am I going to lose my head? Yeah. On the other hand, if I lie about it, you know, is Tennessee lying about it? Because, God, he lost most of his corps, and he's got to have some casualties to show for it on the German side. No, he doesn't know an NKVD guy is sitting out in the ranks there counting the German losses. <laughs> so it's a two-edged sword. Yeah. But in general, in general, in general, I have seen many messages out to commanders saying, you've lost too many men. Stop that. Because they almost run out of troops. That's something people don't think about today in the Russian Federation. Which mobilization base? Most of it, a lot of it's gone. And I, I think they need a million men to do what they're going to if they want to do what they're going to do. They need a million well-trained men. And where are you going to get those? Right, right. <laughs> you might. But can you empty your factories out like you did in World War II and put women in them? I'm not sure. So uh, anyway, this business of self-criticism is helpful. And it does pull them out of a morass. But it doesn't change the reality that one of their biggest problems has been the inability to perform well in the initial period of war. Mm -hmm. And that persists. Now, I, I will say that that persists for a variety of reasons. This time, Putin was taking a risk like Stalin took after Stalingrad, and he's paying for the risk. He paid for the risk. Mm -hmm. And will he take that kind of risk again? Probably not. What does that mean? I'm not sure. We'll have to wait and see because I've stopped predicting. But the system they have does repair damage done in catastrophic situations early in military operations. And if you just ask the Finns what happened, everybody knows what happened in fall of 39, but nobody much remembers what happened in the spring of 40. If we could go back to the pre-war purges of the, the Soviet military, how does that affect the Red Army's or Soviet military's performance at the start of Barbarossa or really throughout the war. You know, you get rid of you get rid of a lot of folks, some of whom or many of whom are maybe not competent. You also make room for others. But in general, could you summarize how the purges affect Soviet performance June 41 going forward? Well you can't measure it. It's a subjective answer, but yeah. it probably hinders it. Mm -hmm. There are two schools of thought in Russia. One is, boy, we got rid of the dead wood. And the other one is, yeah, but 
we brought a lot of that dead wood with us. Just look at the three main direction commanders, Voroshilov, Bujani, and Timoshenko. Now, Timoshenko got bad press because basically Zhukov set him up for out showing Zhukov in the summer of 41 when Zhukov was losing his ass at Yelna and getting very few gains. And Timoshenko was stopping the German army north of Smolensk and north and east of Smolensk. So what did they do to Timoshenko? They sent him down to a lost cause in, in the Kiev region to the Southwest Front. And then, of course, they, there he has a disaster. He has a similar disaster in May 42 at uh, Kharkov. But I'll tell you, the officers, when you study Barbarossa carefully, which I've done recently, you begin seeing the education of those marshals of victory in 45. And the ones that, the ones that worked for Timoshenko in the Western Front in July and August 43, are Konyev and Rokossovsky. They're commanding groups and then they're commanding armies. And the same thing happens with the tank and mech corps. The, the ones who survive the tank battles of 41 and come out commanding tank brigades in late 41, early 42, the Katakovs, the Ropmistrovs, and so on, these people will end up the tank army commanders in 45, 44, and 45. Mm-hmm. So... The Red Army is educated by attrition, German-caused attrition, more than it is by Stalin's purges, in, in my opinion. And boy, I tell you, one of the interesting characters is Zhukov himself, because Zhukov, the Russians have, an, have another list when they talk about the war. This is the Russians in general, the participants. They have bloody generals and not-so-bloody generals. And obviously, the bloody generals tend to rule, but the, the bloodiest of all the generals is Zhukov. And yet, Zhukov is bloody, but wins. He's kind of like Grant. When Grant takes over, there's that old picture in the Civil War of Grant's after the Battle of the Wilderness. The troops begin filtering back through the burning forest, central Virginia, and they come to a road junction. And there in the middle of the road is Grant on his horse pointing, no, no, you're not going north, you're going south, you're going down toward Spotsylvania. That is the sort of dogged perseverance that Zhukov has. Zhukov is the savior of Leningrad. He's the savior of Moscow, and he's the savior of Stalingrad, but only because of what he did to the Germans before the Soviets launched their counteroffensives. And he did it by sacrificing whole armies, multiple armies, in bloody, wasteful attacks, caused huge casualties and losses, but prevented the Germans from taking their objective. And therefore, one time to raise the armies actually needed for successful counteroffensives. And Zhukov kind of confirms that image at Berlin in 45 when he does a ceremonial and probably not needed type of offensive on Berlin, where he suffers some 379,000 casualties in a couple of weeks of fighting. And boy, I tell you, there's nobody who was more upset about those losses than Zhukov the commander of 8th Guards Army, the former 62nd, who uh, wrote a book in 1964, right before Khrushchev was removed. Khrushchev gave him the permission to write it. And he had a chapter in that book entitled, this was uh, Konyet's Third Reich, the end of the Third Reich. And he had the title of the chapter, I think it was chapter 13 or 11, that was The Mistakes Were Made. And that book suddenly disappeared. I don't have the original Russian edition. I have an English edition that was released before they decided to censor it. 
But guess what? The chapter disappeared. <sighs> and that chapter blamed Zhukov and Stalin for not taking Berlin, but it could have been taken in February with very few losses. Instead, he waits and does it ceremoniously at a cost of almost half a million losses. They get to the Oder River, and there's one German division defending Berlin, and it's a weakened Bonzer Grenadier division. That's all they got wow. with both Sturm in the rear. And the first guards tank army, the second guards tank army, the third guards tank, the first and second are the two that could have done it. They are there, they get a bridgehead, and suddenly everything stopped. Well, I found out why it stopped, I think. And it's in my book, my revised version of When Titans Clash, Yalta. The orders to take Berlin came out on the 12th and 13th of February. The orders to take Berlin to the Bel first and second Belarusian, the first and uh, first Belarusian, first Ukrainian front. And they're told to take Berlin. Two days later, the order is remanded. And they're told to dig in, operate toward the flanks. And from that point on, all of the Soviet strategic reserves, including Ninth Guards Army, go into Hungary. And if you look at the Yalta Conference, the day that Stalin issues the halt order, the Allies signed an agreement dividing Germany up. And if you see the agreement, they forget an area. They forget the Ostmark. They don't include that in the occupation zones. The Ostmark is Austria and Vienna. Stalin basically halted the forces, in my opinion, at the Oder because he wanted the Danube Basin for himself, shifted his strategic reserves down there and got it before the Allies changed their mind on the demarcation. Now, we ended up with a demarcation of Austria, but uh, <laughs> it was done a little bit later. Yeah. If we could go back to Zhukov for a moment, standing yeah. in contrast to him is Rukhazovsky. Would you yes. agree with yes. that? And yes. And the reason there's a contrast is that it just so happens that Rukhazovsky, as commander of 16th Army and as commander of fronts thereafter, often was the commander who forces were required to sacrifice those forces for what Zhukov thought was the greater good. And if you read Rakasovsky's, yeah, you can read it now. You know, his unexpurgated memoirs came out. No, I didn't. A lot of them came out in the 90s. And his was one that did. And if you look in that book, it is far different than Rakasovsky's uh, old Soldatsky Dolk. Interesting. It's got criticisms of Zhukov in there. Because when those original memoirs came out, Back in the 60s and 70s, Zhukov was still around, and the censors took out the negative comments on Zhukov. We have the unex unexpurgated copies of many of those early memoirs now, Rakasovsky's being the most, the most one I've written the most carefully, and <laughs> he's got a lot added. Yeah. And wasn't Rakasovsky, you know, as far as Soviet front commanders and, and generals go, he had more of a compassionate side to him than a lot. Well, yes, of he did. He did. Now, now he also he also had most of his fellow front commanders were not Poles, as they called him. He was a Belarusian. And that worked against him because it's hard, you're almost impossible to draw a line where Belarusia begins and Poland and, and Russia begin. Mm -hmm. So he was a Belarusian and he was always frowned upon for being that. And of course, after the war, he becomes war minister for, for Poland, Interesting. which is kind of saying, yeah, you're a Pole. Go take over Poland. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
Brokosowski is interesting because he's one of the most dramatic ones who appears early in the war, Group Yartseva, and his stand at Yartseva during the Battle of First Smolensk. And, and you know, he's, he is effective, very, he's my, my favorite front commander, actually, and does quite well throughout the war. But oftentimes, you know, like at Moscow, he's under Zhukov's command and he's required to do things that now, now I, I will say that. He is not given the Don Flood at Stalingrad until Zhukov has already launched his Kutlaban offensives that caused such tremendous damage, but also saved Stalingrad. And that's that's part of the Stalingrad front anyway. It's not Don Front yet. But he has a he has a chip on his shoulder about Zhukov. Yeah. Had, I should say. Yeah. Sir, could you talk more about the involvement of BDM in the creation of Airland Battle and the influence of the Soviet echelon approach on airland battle. Let me back up one step because this is a battle that I participated in from roughly 1977 to 1985, 86 timeframe. And it was a battle between myself and BDM and also the DIA to a large extent. And the resolution of that battle was the formation of the Soviet Army Studies Office by the uh, chief of staff of the Army in 1983 because he wanted an open source organization that could do open source analysis on the Russians. They didn't have any sort of organization prior to 1983. My first job after I graduated from two years at Garmisch, Russian language school at the Russian Institute, was to go up to O'Dixie in Heidelberg and work in the estimate section. I went up there in June of late June, I believe, in 1977, went into the estimate section of production division and was handed two projects to do by the, uh, the head of the uh, production division, which worked directly for the Axie himself. The first project was to investigate the 11 February incident, which I presume was classified at the time and rather upsetting to a number of senior generals and usurer. And basically what had happened is that on the 11th of February at about 7 in the morning, the whoever was in the listening post at OP Alpha for the 11th ACR just outside of Fulda looked across the border, the Iron Curtain, and of course there was a cleared zone of about, two, about 100, maybe 200 yards where the forest had been cut down. And to his amazement, out of the forest emerged a tank, and then two and then three, and then four, and then five. And within 20 minutes, the count was up to over 120. And those tanks came into the open zone, which was generally found upon by us, obviously. And the column of tanks turned right and headed northward in the open area. And then in about an hour, disappeared back into the forest. The INW, Indications and Warning, center at O'Dixie, got the report, and of course, 11th ACR, which was responsible for border security, went on alert, and so did 5th Corps. The 5th Corps commander, and I forget who it was at the time, raised hell because nothing more was said about the incident, and complained to Washington about it, and said, look, we had a sizable number of tanks rolling toward the border, and nobody paid any attention to it. Well, to make the long story a little shorter, the O'Dixie squashed the report. 
and eventually it came down on his head and he was relieved to come in. But my job was to find out what the devil they were doing there and where they came from. Remember, uh, I think in our last conversation, I talked about running into a captain, a long passed yeah. over captain in the estimate shop at Heidelberg. And this guy was passed over because he spent his time reading Soviet journal, Vojeno Istorichisky Journal, which is military history journal. And that was frowned upon because obviously that journal was nothing but propaganda in the view of our intelligence agencies. Well, the first thing I did after getting charged with doing the investigation was I went over to this young man and I said, look, can I have your file of V's for the last, however, I forgot how many years he had, about 10 years worth of V's. It was an open source publication that you could subscribe to. Took them home with me and began reading them and read them, oh, I guess over the course of a week or two. And he had said to me, you know, if you do pattern analysis on Russian journals, you will find that they talk about what they're currently concerned about. Only they use the vehicle of history to talk about it. In this case, beginning in roughly 1970 and 71, suddenly Military History Journal began talking about operational maneuver, the role of mobile groups during the war, and they talked about them incessantly. Well, the judgment I ultimately reached was, hey, there's something going on in the way they are planning on operating. Now, if you understand what the Soviets went through from 1960 to the 1970s, Khrushchev came in in 1960, and he had his so-called revolution in military affairs, which essentially said that war would be inherently nuclear. During that discussion, Sokolovsky's book came out, Voyenaya Strategia, Military Strategy. And that was the, the basically the program that Khrushchev followed and aped our program of massive retaliation, which we had had since the early 1950s. Now, Kennedy had changed that in 1964 when he put in flexible response, which said that essentially nuclear war was not inevitable and you could have wars of a conventional nature without resorting to nuclear weapons. Mm -hmm. That drove the Soviets mad. Now, at the time, most of the marshals of World War II were still alive, Zhukov, Rokossovsky, and so on down the line. And they were very upset by Khrushchev's program of revolution and military affairs because it downgraded the role of ground forces and their role in war. As a matter of fact, Khrushchev went as far as to abolish the ground forces when Konyev was in charge of them. And this created a serious brouhaha. And the brouhaha culminated in late 1964 when Khrushchev was removed from power by force, basically, by his colleagues in the Politburo. And, of course, that was credited to the Cuban Missile Crisis and the failure of the Open Lands Program. My own opinion is that it should have been credited to the military. Hmm. And the fact that they wanted to escape this straitjacket of the revolution in military affairs and wanted to embrace flexible response as we did in the 1960s. In any case, this feeds directly into the articles that appeared in Military Historical Journal. 
very clearly in the early 70s, the Soviets began shifting their publications and began talking, you can check it numerically in the number of articles, about the use of mobile groups and the conduct of operational maneuver during World War II, in particular, the last two years of the war. I followed that very closely. General Ogarkov was the chief of staff of the Soviet Armed Forces at the time. And in time, by the late 1970s, he instituted a new program called the Theater Strategic Offensive. And the Theater Strategic Offensive was very different from the laydown that our intelligence had of how they would conduct military operations. Now, this falls into my second project that I was given. While investigating the 11 February incident, I was also given the task of writing a new estimate for USERA. That's an estimate of Soviet capabilities, which is supposed to be done every year and updated every year and kept fresh based on developments in the Soviet Union. I looked high and low for an old copy of the estimate. And I discovered that essentially since 19, roughly 1955, they had simply torn the first page off and put a new one on with a new date. I finally found the original estimate, a copy in BAOR, British Army of the Rhine, and that confirmed my judgment that nothing had been done for basically 10 years on the thing, or actually 15 years. All of this culminated in my judgment, and at the time, rather flimsy, that the Soviets were changing their modus operandi, and they were changing it from a deeply echeloned posture as they had used in World War II to something that was more appropriate now for a nuclear, operating in a nuclear stared environment. To me, the operational maneuver force, namely the Soviet mobile group, which they called during the war, the echelon for exploiting success, the Soviets concluded that if you began operations with highly mobile armored forces and intermeshed them very quickly with the defenders, the defenders would be incapable of responding with tactical nuclear weapons for fear of the damage they did to their own forces. At the same time, if you looked at those articles being written in the journals, the articles that were talking about operational maneuver were talking about operational maneuver with tank armies in first echelon. In other words, preempting enemy defenses. And the two greatest examples of that were Stalingrad when they used the old model tank army, and it led the attack, 5th Tank Army, and Manchuria in 1945 when they led the attack with 6th Guards Tank Army across the Grand Hangan Mountains and totally caught the Japanese by surprise. Now, I wasn't the only one working on this. Word of what I was concluding reached BND, the Bundesnachrichtendienst. That's the German intelligence services, the heirs to Galen during the war. And they contacted me and asked me to come down to Munich and talk about what I had learned. And they would share with me what they had learned. I did that the first time. Don't forget the date, but it was in 70, late 77. And I met with them in a safe house outside of Munich and we discussed the matter. The next year, I went down and got into the BND facilities. I, I've forgotten where they are now, but I got into the facilities and we continued our discussions. And basically, if you distilled it down, they were concerned about the same thing I was concerned about. And that was that 
The Soviets were backing away from Khrushchev's revolution in military affairs and were turning to Ogarkov's theater strategic offensive, which by this time, Chris Donnelly and a number of researchers in England were also concluding. Mm. The tool for doing that was the OMG. But not only the OMG, the operational maneuver group at front and army level, but also forward detachments, which are kind of like the awls that you drive into a wall before you put the screw in. Now, I did a little pattern analysis on GSFG. And I said, now look, they have in GSFG at army level, a separate tank regiment, not independent of our intelligence called it because nothing is independent in the Soviet army or the Russian army, but it's all daily separate. That means it's outside the normal TONE of that or STOT of that particular unit. And these separate tank regiments, there was one per army in GSFG. There were five of them. And they were all equipped with very heavy tanks, first the older heavy tanks, then the older models. They were basically throwaway tanks, to be honest about it. And if you did a pattern analysis and laid out where those forces were in peacetime, you discovered the separate tank regiment was in the westernmost part of that army's deployment, not in the rear. And at the time, DIA was calling those so-called independent tank regiments the Army Commander's Reserve. If you look down at motorized rifle divisions and tank divisions, you would find in the motorized rifle divisions a separate tank battalion, heavier than a normal tank battalion. I believe 51 tanks was the number in it, but far more capable than the normal tank line tank battalion in a tank division or in a motorized rifle division. I did a pattern analysis on those, and they were also located in the westernmost point, the deployment of that particular, of each of those armies. So I concluded in my investigation of the, the 11 February incident that that 120 plus tanks that appeared along the border was a test to see how we'd react to a forward detachment, an army forward detachment, if it were to deploy forward. In this instance, of course, we didn't react. And this is why later on, General Galvin and General Starry, one of the two commanded Fifth Corps at the time, bought onto this idea of operational maneuver rather easily. Now, I was asked to write an estimate, and I wrote the estimate. I finally finished it in 1979, and it was a far cry from the previous estimate. This estimate had three scenarios in it. One short warning, of basically a standing start attack. One attack after 96 hours, three days. And the third one, an attack with 10 days of warning. When I finished that estimate and we filed it to DIA, DIA had a hamburger. They said, no, we're going to have 30 to 60 days of warning. It's automatic. That's going to be it. You can't have that estimate. We don't approve it. Well, of course, <laughs> ironically, the commanding general of SHAPE, I believe it was General Haig at the time, said, wait a minute, I wear two hats, and USERA is, USERA is my command in NATO. And if I want the estimate, I will have the estimate. And he overruled DIA, and my estimate 
went into being as the approved estimate for USER and 7th Army. Now, that estimate <laughs> mysteriously disappeared. I had checked when I retired from the Army. I checked to see that they usually declassify these things after a number of years. And I checked to see if my estimate from USER had been declassified. And yes, it had. And I saw it. A year later, about 1994, it disappeared. I don't know why it disappeared. I don't know how it disappeared. I don't know if other estimates disappeared, but but a lot of the estimates that were made by various commands disappeared in the mid-90s. Well, the first thing I did, that may have been the 80s, the first thing I did when I got to SASO, the Soviet Army Studies Office, after the chief created it in 1983, was I wrote a new estimate based on my memory. So I called it the Soviet Conduct of War, and it was, the best of my knowledge, a full reconstruction of what I had put out in 1979. Mm -hmm. That one I have been marketing in my self-publishing program for quite a number of years. But in any case, there was this tension throughout the entire period about whether the Soviets were changing their structure for a potential attack should war have occurred, whether that was changing or not. At about the same time, 1979, that I was working on this report and the estimate, another report came across our desk, and it was an estimate by BDN on Soviet echelonment. It was called the echelonment study. The echelonment study was a laydown of the way Soviets had conducted war in the late 50s. It was essentially a reflection of the old USERA estimate. And it concluded that since the Soviets deploy forward in echelon formation, the way you defeat them is defeat their second echelons. And this is where the term air-land battle came from. Air was going to interdict the second echelon and thereby thwart the Soviet offensive. The estimate section of Odixie, myself included, said that the report is incorrect and should be ignored. The Odixie himself and the chief of production division did the same thing. And I thought it was a dead issue until I returned to Fort Leavenworth in 1979 to the Combat Studies Institute. And one night at the officers club, I saw the B in BDN together with the commander, the combined arms command commander and the former commander of USERA coming through the hall of the officers club Turns out the commander of USERA was now working for BDM. No aspersions cast by me. I was still a major. I was still involved in analyzing and not criticizing. And so I kept my mouth shut about that, but it irked me ever since. And that opened my struggle at CSI with this business of changing Soviet operational techniques and strategies for that matter. And followed that line all the way through the 1990s. And of course, during the 80s, the Operational Maneuver Group came into being. Chris Donnelly actually discovered it in a publication produced by the Poles who liked to reveal Soviet secrets <laughs> and did it as a kind of a hobby. And of course, the man who ultimately received command of the first theater strategic operation, the Western Theater, TVD was none other than Ogarkov. And people said, well, that's a demotion from him because he was chief of the general staff. Mm -hmm. No, it was not. He was put in command of the system he created. Of course, what fouled everything up and probably 
saved our ass in the mid-1980s was the Soviet decision to abandon this whole theater strategic concept and for economic, political, and other reasons, back off of this Ogarkov plan and back off into something that ultimately became the new system. And that was the system adopted by the Russians after 1990, where they focused on the lower level of the Ogarkov plan, the, the forward detachments, which essentially evolved into battalion groups and brigade groups. Hmm. So there's your panoply of your laydown of, of the whole business of my involvement with the 11 February incident, the estimate, the Bundesnachrinsteins chiming in. And that's where my comment about BDN came in and airland battle. Oh, I very appreciate your explanation of that, sir. And to clarify, BDM was a technical services firm, right? It was essentially a defense contractor, right? Yes, exactly. Got it. And that uh, that caused me to be anti-defense contractors for the remainder of my career. Yeah, un- understandable. Uh, selling things for profit and not truth can be fatal. Absolutely. I'd like to return to the topic of the Nazi-Soviet war and ask some questions about the <laughs> aspects of the war. The first I'd like to ask is how and why did Operation Barbarossa, the, the German invasion of the Soviet Union, fail? It failed basically for two reasons. It failed first because Hitler believed the propaganda about the Red Army and the Red Army's weakness and, of course, was motivated by motivated by geopolitics and race, if nothing else. He was convinced by virtue of the results of the Soviet-Finnish war, actually the wrong results because he looked primarily at the opening phases and failed to look at the closing phases. He was convinced that the Soviets would collapse. They didn't collapse. They perhaps should have collapsed, but they didn't. And when you're looking for an answer as to why they didn't collapse, then you've got a couple of little factors in there, a couple of big factors. One is Stalin's innate stubbornness. He set them up for the tragedy that they had in Barbarossa, in the first nine months of Barbarossa, but he also dug his heels in. And at an immense cost of lives, he sapped the strength of the Wehrmacht, the invasion force, to the point where very soon, and I would say as early as early July 1941, when the German troops reached the Dnieper River, they'd essentially accomplished the goal set out by Hitler. And the goal set out by Hitler was, the assumption set out by Hitler was that if you destroyed all Red Army forces west of the Davina and Dnieper River, you have won the war. Well, they did that. They essentially destroyed all Russian forces in the forward area. And I can imagine the the likes of Guderian and Hoth and the various Panzer leaders when they got to the Dnieper River only to find that there were five more armies on the other side. Yeah, They weren't very good, but they were there and they fought. The fact that it was Germans invading the Soviet Union also had an effect and it unified a population. Unified may be too strong a word, but it did unify and gave Stalin the opportunity to mobilize the nation. And this is why Putin has been doing it today and using the, basically the same reasons by simply calling the Ukrainians Nazis. Mm-hmm. That strikes a very sensitive vein in the Russian psyche. And in, in short, basically, 
the Wehrmacht bit off more than it can chew. I realized that by early July 1941. You look at the way the Wehrmacht advanced after the first week of July. It was in fits and spurts. They did not have a clear operational view of how you go about destroying the Soviet, the Red Army, and hence the Soviet Union, and hence their strategy failed. Mm-hmm. Svetin made the remark in 1924, Alexander Svetin, tactics takes the steps from which operational leaps are assembled, strategy points out the path. And if the operational leaps you have established become ad hoc and improvised, Generally speaking, your strategy is not going to work. Barbarossa and its failure is obviously a a turning point of the campaign in the East, the battles before Moscow being a part of that. What are the other major turning points of the war on the Eastern Front? I have traditionally used three turning points, and I might add a fourth right now after finishing the research I've done on the strengths losses of Soviet tank and mechanized corps. I've finished that study up through now the end of 1942, and I'm plowing on into 1943. Moscow, the Battle of Moscow showed that Germany could not win the war on its terms, the Barbarossa terms. That was clear. That's the first turning point. When they conducted their second major invasion in 1942 and lost at Stalingrad, That demonstrated that Germany would lose the war, but left unanswered the question, how long would it take and how many lives would it cost? The Battle of Kursk in the summer of 1943, which was also earmarked by a great deal of Soviet concern and Soviet panic and justified panic because they'd never stopped a German strategic offensive short of the strategic depths prior to the summer of 43. Their victory, again, bloody and costly as it was, showed that the Germans would lose the war totally, irrevocably, as the the Soviets talk about, about losses. Now, I said I would maybe add a fourth turning point. The fourth turning point is going to be the fall of 1943, when the Soviets finally, finally, take the measures that allow them to put into effect deep operations, deep operational maneuver, adequate strategic planning, basically satisfactory unit training and personal training, all the things that need to be done to hone your instrument of war into something with an edge on it that can sustain a military operations they will do in the last six months, the last five months of 1943. And so when you begin operations in 44, you begin operations that are truly large scale, truly successful. Basically, every operation after 1944, beginning in 1944, has a continuing stage. In other words, once they have achieved their strategic objective, they will go ahead and push the limits of the envelope and go well beyond. You've spent a lot of time writing about, speaking about what you call forgotten battles of the Nazi-Soviet war. Could you talk about some of these battles? What makes them forgotten? Well, and here here I, I run into constant problems because I'm forever getting people 
getting requests for folks for information on, I, I did a Forgotten Battle series. Right. And I did it through 19, early 1944 and then terminated it. I was going to do it for each camp, each of the eight campaigns in the war. But I simply ran out of time and Stalingrad sucked up what was remaining. When I began researching in 1979, I did my first research on the Manchurian operation. Uh, I discovered very quickly that something like 60 to 70 percent of the detail in the war had been erased from Soviet accounts, literally erased. For example, we talked in 1944 about Stalin's, I think it was 10 blows. This is something Stalin himself coined, and it talked about the 10 successful offensives he conducted during the year. Well, it turns out there were 15 or 20 offensives conducted. And the only ones that made it into the list of the 10 blows were the ones that worked. And this is the way that the Soviets wrote about the war, at least open source Soviet writing about the war. I will tell you that while the open source was talking about, oh, talking about 30 to 40 percent of the war, the closed sources were actually talking about the other 60 percent. And that's why my goal was to restore as much of that as I could. And I did it with the device of forgotten battles. Mm -hmm. The first one I discovered, I discovered by virtual happenstance. I was sitting in my, in my office in the middle of the Leavenworth National Cemetery. That's where Sasso, FEMSO, was formed. And we chose that, that location because it was quiet and the surroundings lent a certain urgency to your work, gravestones. I was sitting around collecting. I had, I had collected the Lagerost maps and a lot of the maps of German army groups, German armies, both intelligence and operational maps. And I was trying to copy them all on our copy machine, the rolls of microfilm, and take them with me when I retired. Well, I was sitting there one night at about two in the morning, and I was doing Ninth Army, German Ninth Army, Army Group Center's Ninth Army, and I was doing it for, I guess, the, it was the role of Ninth, Ninth, Ninth Army's records were captured by the Soviets and never returned. So I've always been fascinated by by Ninth Army's records. Mm -hmm. And I found a series of overlays, which were the intelligence overlays of Ninth Army for the fall of 1942. And I'm scrolling along, 1st of November, 2nd of November, 3rd of November, and so on, just, just piling sheets up in a large pile. And all of a sudden, I got to the 25th of November, and the German front broke. There was a hole there. And when the Germans did overlays, intelligence overlays, they put in the units that were creating the hole. In other words, the Soviet units that were operating. Mm -hmm. And the hole got bigger. It got bigger and bigger and bigger until it almost encircled the entire Rzevsichevka salient. And guess what? In the holes were mech corps and tank corps and cavalry corps exploiting deep. And I said, now what the heck is this? Yeah. I've never heard of this operation. What is this operation? It's going on now in the wake of Stalingrad. The Stalingrad offensive has just, just occurred, Operation Uranus. And they've been circled by the 25th of November. They've been circled 6th Army at Stalingrad. Now, what's going on up here at 9th Army? Well, I looked through my Soviet military encyclopedias. By this time, I had two versions, the 60s version and the 80s version. 
And I looked at the maps. They're replete with colored maps and covering every operation. And there was one map in one volume of the eight-volume 1976 encyclopedia that had a map of the fall campaign, the campaign in which Uranus took place and little Saturn took place. And up by the reserve salient was an arrow and a little mark that somebody had not erased setting Operation Mars. And I said, my God, what's Mars? Well, I did further research and there was an article done by an American on the 106th German Infantry Division fighting up near Rezhev. And I looked at the, I can't remember the name of the, the author of the article. It's in my book on, my first book on, on a forgotten battle, which I missed, which I shouldn't have named Zhukov's greatest defeat, even though it was. And the article was about German intelligence. And the article said that the Germans broke through Ninth Army's defenses and after about 10 days were finally stopped and driven out. I said, wait a minute, that's Operation Mars. That's the Ninth Army's intel overlays, and it, and it confirms that that did, in fact, occur. Then I went back through. By this time, we had received all of the Soviet Bornik Materialov, collections of material on war experiences. And there's something like 80 volumes of this stuff that we got. We got it through intelligence channels. The Russians finally released it themselves. And I was going through there, and all of a sudden, I came upon an article in, in one volume that said the operations of a mobile group in the Rezhevsi-Chevka offensive. And it was about the attack by Western Front on the eastern half of that Rezhev salient. And it had all the details about the two mech corps, the, the, the cavalry corps that was in the mobile group and the two tank corps in the mobile group, and so on and so forth. Well, in any case, by virtue of all of these sources, I was able to put together one of my more unusual books. I cast it into the form of a historical novel and had the players making decisions in various headquarters in Moscow and in Berlin about the operation. My publisher named it Zhukov's Greatest Defeat, and I didn't catch it. And <laughs> I caught hell from the Russians. It was Persona Non Grata from 1995 when it was published in 1999 when suddenly Putin asked for all of my stuff. So that was the first of the forgotten battles. The second of the forgotten battles was my book on the operation of Soviet second and third Ukrainian fronts carried out in April 1944 in an attempt to invade Romania. That went up. Then I finally said, okay, I got to do, do a collection of Forgotten Battles. And I started focusing on it and did a short report called Forgotten Battles, which just listed the ones I'd found. And then I wrote a longer report, came out to be the six volumes of Forgotten Battles that I was doing chronologically on the eight campaigns. And, and basically, there were a heck of a lot of Forgotten Battles. And that's because they were part of the 60% of the war that had been covered up. Mm. Now, having said all that, even in the battles that weren't covered up, the battles around Moscow, Stalingrad, Leningrad, there you will also find roughly 40 to 50 percent of the materials covered up. The things that were of embarrassing nature to the Red Army generally weren't included in their studies and their histories until Putin opened the archives in sometime around the time he requested my books. These omissions had to have had a pretty big 
influence, pretty big impact on our understanding, the West's understanding of the Soviet Nazi war, right? Well, yes, they fundamental alter. The devil is always in the detail. Yeah. And that's something I have, I have harped on when I hired somebody from my office at FIMSO or SASO. My argument had always been the devil is in the detail, and that's why there are no experts. Mm. A true expert will not call himself an expert because he realizes there's always something more he can learn. Absolutely. And, uh, and it is certainly the case with the Russian experiences in wartime. I will add that I am still astounded by the amount of detail that has come out of this that is now available if you gain access, if you get, learn how to get into the Soviet archives and, and can look at that data, you will be astounded at, at what's available. It, it's far more thorough than you'll find in the German archives. If you had the time to write another work on a forgotten battle, which forgotten battle would you explore? <laughs> I don't. I don't have any idea, frankly. There's so many to choose from, right? Exactly. No, there, there are so many to choose from. When I, when I quit it, I quit it. I quit it at. I quit my large scale study. At uh, these are all self published, basically. I did it for war gamers because war gamers agree with me that the devil was in the detail and they lack the detail. Mm-hmm. And they've always lacked the detail and they're starved for detail. And that's, that's why I'm now embarked on this, this long-term operation that I may not finish getting the daily strengths, losses and provisioning of Soviet tank and mechanized course. I'd love to do it till 1945, but it's taken me three years to do just the 1942 portion. Wow. Well, if there are any uh, researchers out there who want to help you, you know, get in touch with us and we'll connect you with I am. I have always been recruiting because one of the real tragedies of the 1990s, other than the failure of the U.S.-Russian partnership project that, that we were in, involved in, one of the tragedies was the fact that the number of researchers in Russian quantitatively disappeared. I mean, it just just they're gone. There's hardly anybody doing research. Mm-hmm. And of course, with the late unpleasantness in Ukraine, it's become even worse. And the, perhaps the worst aspect of that is that colleges and universities consider the study of war to be inappropriate. The Soviet Nazi war has many myths attached to it. You've spilled a, a great deal of ink exploding some of these myths what are some of your top myths of the war? Well, I wrote a book. I wrote a study. The study, and it's been the most popular one. This one is also, what I usually did was I put my articles in the journal, and then I put them under cover. And when I retired, I sold them as short studies. The Soviet-German War, Myths and Realities is a 100-page study that, that I prepared back in, I guess, about 2002. And I tried to capture all the myths for each of, the, each of the eight periods of war. There are so many that it's hard to quantify which one is the most, most important. The biggest myth in the Soviet Union is the Red Army won the war with ease because of its superior strategy, operational art, and tactics. Mm-hmm. That's a myth. There was a lot of learning going on, and a lot of people paid the price of that learning. And the learning took the better part of three years before it began bearing fruit. And even by 1945, when Berlin, in my opinion, could have been taken in February, 
Stalin instead chose to delay it until April and instead went after the Ostmark, the Danube Basin, in the intervening months from February to April because Yalta essentially gave it to him for the taking. The other myth is the myth of German invincibility, which was really pretty much smashed by early July 1941. And the problem is the Germans knew it. The senior commanders, if you read Bach's memoirs, the, the commander of Army Group Center, and you look at, at the section on the Germans have gotten to Smolensk. They've encircled and destroyed the better part of three Soviet armies that were defending along the Dnieper River. And yet five more armies, seven more armies arise in front of them. And those armies attack Bach's army group center. And Hitler discovers at that point that he's done. He doesn't have any armor covering between army group north and army group center. There's a big hole and he sends third panzer group up there. And the Soviets, Timoshenko, in command of the Western Front and the Western TVT, launches attack after attack along the river northeast of Smolensk. And Bach writes in his diaries, if we have to put up with any more of this, we're, we're going to collapse. Mm. We've got to have our armor back. So th there is doubt. There is serious doubt planted in German minds. Uh, that doubt won't disappear until 1943, but in the summer of 43, that doubt becomes a certainty in, in the minds of many Germans. And there's a certain fatalism that drives them on to continue to serve Hitler till war's end. There are two other myths I wanted to discuss. The first <clears throat> is we often hear that the Soviets beat the Germans through overwhelming numbers, straight attrition, and there were certain... And yeah, and weather. And all of those things were present at different times and places, but that, I think, simplifies or, or presents a simplistic view of the Soviet road to victory. Could you comment on that? Yes, you're absolutely right. It, it is simplistic, and it is the view that was commonly held. And one of the most astonishing things that I found when I held the Art of War Symposia at the War College for three years, those week-long sessions where we analyzed operations, three operations per year, and the German veterans were there, was were the mouths open on the part of the German veterans when they saw what they saw, what they ultimately faced. The reason they were always faced with overwhelming numbers was because the first two years of the war, the Soviets threw into combat partially and even untrained recruits in mass numbers who died by the millions. By the third and fourth year of the war, the Soviets learned the art of concentration. They created, beginning in 1943, something called fortified regions and field fortified regions. And these were economy of force units, heavy in firepower, consisting of anywhere from seven to 20, sometimes even more, artillery, machine gun artillery battalions with a strength of about 4,000 men that could occupy a front of something like 40 kilometers. And if you look at the Soviet laydown, and the Germans knew this, I mean, uh, at least the people in Intel knew it. If you looked at the laydowns, you'd have fortified regions covering, well, let me take Lvov Sandomirsk at the end of the war, Vistula Oder, mm -hmm. when they broke out of the Sandomirsk bridgehead, Baranov, as the Germans call it. The Soviets jammed into that bridgehead the better part of five armies, three combined arms and two tank. And German intelligence missed 
missed two-thirds of the force. They simply didn't know they were there. Now, how did they they put all that in that bridgehead? They put it there through excellent deception and excellent camouflage, but they also did it because they held large sections of the front with artillery machine gun battalions of fortified regions Mm. where the Germans actually opposing them outnumbered the Soviets. So it's that that art of concentration and deception that allowed the Soviets to create literally overwhelming force and penetration sectors in 1944 and 45. When you add to that the artillery, by 1944 and 45, when the Soviets field artillery penetration corps, artillery brigades, and literally firing hub to hub, they are doing the equivalent of an arc light in Vietnam, a three kilometer by one kilometer box that takes out everything in that German defensive box before the tanks ever enter the fray. This gives the German veterans the opinion that they're always outnumbered 10 to 1. The Soviets have numbers for this. And basically, basically by, by mid-war, they are trying to get a 3 to 1 superiority strategically. And if they can obtain a 3 to 1 superiority strategically, they will gain a 5 to 7 to 1 superiority operationally and up to 20 to 1 superiority tactically. And that, that's where the German impression of overwhelming force comes from. At Stalingrad, it's the numbers are somewhat lower. They're looking for a 1.5 to 1 strategic superiority, but they conduct the operation and do it successfully because they conduct most of it against Romanian forces. Where does that force ratio, because it's still used today, you know, to be successful in an attack, you should always aim to have a three to one. Yeah, the, the Soviet general staff deals with numbers. Correlation of forces is is a a very, very important number for them. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure it still remains a very important number because if you can calculate, and, and what we don't know is the criteria that the general staff sets. It varies by a whole host of factors, including terrain, including time of year, including the nature of the force you're facing and so on. But they have had these indices related to correlation of forces. And the indices not only include manpower, but more importantly, artillery, armor, and every category. And if you look at the correlation of force charts in the archives, Russian archives, and I think you'll see them for the Cold War and you'll see them for other wars as well, you'll find a, hundreds and hundreds of correlations of forces because it's a mandatory step in the development of an operational plan. The other myth I wanted to talk about was the superiority of the T-34 tank. What are your thoughts about the quality of the T-34? Well, you know, having prepared this, this study on armor and losses, the myth of the T-34, it, it, it is a very valuable weapon. Mm-hmm. It's a very valuable weapon because the Soviets produce it before the Germans do. They produce it by surprise. It's on the battlefield in 1941. It can do a lot more damage to a German tank, Mark IV, for example, than a Valentine or a Matilda, the Mark III or Mark II British, or the older Soviet tanks. But the T-34 has serious engine problems. There's a limitation on engine hours. If you get up over 100 hours, it will cease working. And 100 hours in a major offensive doesn't take long to reach. Yeah, that goes by quickly. 
<laughs> yeah. It has transmission problems. It's in the summer of 43, the post-Stalingrad and post-Stalingrad period that the general staff wrote a report. They wrote a report assessing the value of tank armies and tank and mechanized corps. And that report concludes we have a problem with, in particular with the T-34s. All of our corps that are equipped with them will begin an operation with roughly, I'll just choose an arbitrary number, 150 to 180 tanks. Two thirds of those will be T-34s and the other third will be T-60s or T-70s. And in the course of five days of operations, those cores will lose 85% of their tanks to mechanical failure. That's just, that's an absurdly high number. It is absurdly high. And, and we've got the numbers now. Uh, I've got First Guard's mechanized core that begins the operation against the Italians with, I think the number is 305 tanks. Uh, some of those are being repaired and some are en route. And usually in route means broken down in route. And they will end the month of December. They begin the operation on 16 December. And by the 31st of December, they've got 25 tanks left. Wow. The first tank corps that breaks through the Romanian Third Army on the 19th of November will have two tanks remaining in the end of end of November. The tank and mech corps that link up at Kalach and Sovietsky to encircle Sixth Army. The uh, 16th Tank Corps has about 15 tanks when it does the link up, and the 4th Mech Corps has about 15 or 20 tanks. Mm. So basically, the attrition level in that operation is appalling, yeah. and most of the attrition is from mechanical breakdown, and the Soviet solution to that problem comes in the summer of '43, when they add to their tank armies and tank and mech corps a reserve of in excess of 50 tanks. It's called Commander's Reserve. Mm. And those are simply thrown into combat to replace the ones that are lost. Basically, what the Soviets will do in the summer of 43 is simply, rather than correct the problems in the factories, which I'm sure they're working on, will just bring hordes of tanks in in reserve and feed them in. The Battle of Oriol, that's one of the counteroffensives the Soviets launch after Kursk. I haven't done a mock-up. The Soviets have, have admitted to the tank losses overall. But if you look at the losses of, say, 4th Tank Army, which starts the operation with in excess of 500 tanks and loses something like 700 in the course of two weeks of operations, and it has to be pulled out of line to be refitted. Up until August 43, that process, you should pull them out of line, give them a 400 more tanks and send them back into line. Beginning in October and November 43, the process is pull that tank corps, mech corps, tank army out of line, give it eight weeks to 10 weeks, sometimes 12 weeks in training, and then send it back into line. So what changes is the degree of training, and we have to assume that the, the degree of factory repair does the same thing. It improves the, the factory production. The T-34 tank, anywhere you go in Eastern Europe, they may be removed now, but every time you turn around, there's a T-34 on a pedestal. Sure, sure. But because they, they manufacture them by the hundreds of thousands. Right. The only, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, I think the only tank that outproduced that was the Sherman. Is that correct? Or did they, did the Soviets produce more T-34s than we produce Shermans? 
I don't know the number for Shermans, but I do know that the Soviets received a lot of Sherman tanks. If you've read Dmitry Loza's book, he commanded a Sherman battalion uh, in Hungary and then in Manchuria in 45. And in Manchuria, part of the deal for the Russians to go into Manchuria was our promise that we would equip, basically equip the entire Soviet force that was being sent on the Trans-Siberian Railroad unequipped. No kidding. And we did that under the Japanese's eyes, <laughs> through the port of Vladivostok. And you can read about that in Loza, because mm-hmm. Loza commands a Sherman battalion. I think it's funny replaced with BTs, because the Shermans won't get across the Grand Hingen passes, and the BTs do. But in this case, getting BTs and several battalions of tanks across the Grand Hingens has the effect of collapsing the entire Japanese Kwantung army. They don't need the whole six guards tank army. This is a a great segue to another question. I want to talk more about Loza. The questions, would you comment on the degree of risk-taking in the Soviet and German armies throughout the war? At any point, particularly at the tactical and operational levels, do we ever see anything resembling initiative-based tactics in the Red Army? And I point to Loza because in his books, at least the English translations, in some of his accounts of the battles and operations in, in 44, 45, Loza seems to be taking initiative in situations. And yeah, well, okay, you've asked two questions. You've asked risk and you've asked about initiative. Yeah. And the initiative is there. And I'll give you a, a quick answer on the initiative. If you look at Soviet plans, strategic plans in 41 and 42, and to some extent in 43. You will see the deep operating forces, which Loza is his fifth guard's mech corps. But you'll see the missions being assigned to them as lines in concert with the lines being established by the rifle forces. You will reach positions from to so-and-so by such-and-such. So-and-so is on your left, so-and-so is on your right. When you get into 44 and 45, they begin issuing goose eggs. And that is you give a tank brigade a goose egg target. You leave it to the commander where that actual goose egg is, based on the local conditions. But there's a considerable more, and this is because they've trained the commanders better by that time, and the ones who lack the training have been killed off anyway. And so you can trust them to do. Now, (laughs) there are many places when initiative taking hurts. For example... SS Panzer Corps coming in with whichever the divisions were, I guess Reich was the one that goes into the city, that comes in to bail out Monstein in the January and February 43. Hauser, the commander of SS Panzer Corps, takes the Panzer Corps into Kharkov City. That's a no no. Mm-hmm. He takes considerable losses, unnecessary losses. And there's a certain arrogance on the part of SS units to do that. They do it routinely sometimes, and it's their carelessness in radio communications that stands out that allows the Soviets in 44 to realize that the SS Panzer Corps is being moved south into Hungary before it gets there Hmm. because they've read its communications, and that's because they have poor communication security. It works both ways. Yeah, yeah. Rokmistrov takes 5th Guard's tank army into the streets of Vilnius during the latter stages of the Belarusian operation. And you don't put tanks into a city with Panzerfausts around. It just isn't done. And Rodmistov is removed from command for that and replaced with Volsky. Stalin himself takes risks 
and the wrist, he takes our, he takes through Zhukov and he takes them under the category of justifiable risks. And then there's the big unjustifiable risk that he takes in January and February of 44 when he launches all of his, and Stalin's general approach to war is attack everywhere and they will break somewhere. Mm -hmm. And he develops that based on the experiences of 41 largely. The attack on Leningrad by 4th Panzer Group falters largely because Zhukov ordered the army in the Orient Bomb Bridgehead, that's the bridgehead west of, of Leningrad up against the Baltic Sea. He orders that army commander to attack literally suicidally into the flank of the advancing Germans. The army commander refuses. He's relieved, replaced, and the new army commander, valuing his neck, follows the order and suffers huge casualties. The net result is when the Germans get to Pulkova Heights, they don't have the force to push through and take Leningrad. Hmm. Zhukov saves the city by sacrificing untold thousands of troops in those suicidal attacks. If you read Rokossovsky's unexpurgated memoirs that came out in the 1990s, as commander of 16th Army outside of Moscow during Operation Typhoon, he is ordered in early November to conduct literally suicidal attacks into the teeth of advancing, I believe, yeah, third Panzer group. Rokossovsky saw about it. He takes a hell of a lot of casualties. And Zhukov does the same thing with the First Guards Cavalry Corps. He launches it into the breach unnecessarily in the eyes of many, but necessarily in the eyes of Zhukov. And when the Germans get to Moscow, they collapse like a paper bag under the assaults, the tactical assaults that Zhukov organizes there. He saves the city of Moscow. On the road to Stalingrad in 1942, when the Germans break through across the Don and 14th Panzer Corps lunges toward the river, the Volga River, north of Stalingrad, and 48th Panzer Corps, the 4th Panzer Army, does the same thing south of Stalingrad, Zhukov reacts very quickly and raises three armies, the 66th, the 24th, and the 4th Panzer Army. The uh, 4th Panzer Army is the satirical name given to the army because it has four tanks. <laughs> and, and he launches those forces against the flank of 14th Panzer Corps, so fierce are the attacks that 14th Panzer Corps, which has the 16th Panzer Division and two motorized divisions, the 3rd and the 10th, have to go into all-around defense between the Don and the Volga and barely hang on. The Corps commander, the Panzer Corps commander, asks Hitler to let him come back because he's being terrifically pounded and in danger of annihilation. 16th Panzer Division, whose mission was to get into the factory district, manages to get one battalion down to the river separating Spartanovka and the factory district, where it's stopped by a scratch force assembled by Fekulenko, commander of one of the failed tank corps earlier, who had been relieved. He raises tanks driven out of the tractor factory and stops that one battalion, the 16th Panzer. And therein lies the salvation of Stalingrad because the Germans have to take the city with infantry, 6th Army. So Zhukov three times takes risks he considers necessary, has tremendous losses. Now, <laughs> in 1945, when they conducted, in April 45, when they conduct the attack on Berlin, Zhukov takes another risk. He does it ceremoniously. 
in a full-scale frontal attack on the Seeloff Heights. And the commander of 8th Guards Army, Tweekoff, commander of 62nd Army at Stalingrad, doesn't appreciate it because he takes something like 200,000 casualties in the frontal attack. That is an unnecessary, and from, from Shrikov's view, is an unnecessary waste of people by taking a risk of a frontal attack. Stalin, on the other hand, takes a massive risk in January and February 1942 by launching, or 1943, by launching all of his fronts in southern Russia on the offensive with inadequate ammunition, inadequate no-replacement personnel, inadequate fuel supplies, inadequate number of tanks, and the whole thing collapses like a pile of cards in early March 1943 with tremendous Soviet losses. Mm -hmm. So yes, there is risk-taking going on, and it's often Stalin who takes the risks. He'll do it later in the war by deliberately extending his successful offensives until those offensives run out of gas and fail, calling them continuation offensives, which he feels are necessary because it, it increases the pressure on the Germans in every sector of the front. At the small unit level, so we're, we're talking, let's say, squads, <coughs> regiments, yep. maybe divisions. Yep. Do, we ever, do we see initiative from Soviet commanders ever approaching what was... Yeah, the level of initiative that was trained for and expected in German commanders. Generally speaking, let me give you a broad statement on that. Generally speaking, the Germans remain superior at the tactical level, and that's within division and down to battalion throughout the war. They developed the art of comp group creation to a, a science. And it's amazing to me. It's not amazing to me because I know how they do it. But basically, they are able to put together small groups of mixed type forces, tanks, anti-tank guns, packs, infantry, and with astonishing small numbers, do astonishingly effective things like hold back Soviet offensives. And that pertains right to the end of the war. Now, on the question of initiative. If you're trying to orchestrate offensives with a million, million and a half men, if you have somebody step out of line in a battalion or a regiment and carries that regiment left or right off target, that will open a fissure subject to exploitation by counterattack. Sure. So there's reason for, for the comment one, one Soviet rifle regiment, guards rifle regiment made to me, he was in the Vistula Odor operation. He had commanded the regiment since 43, and I asked him, what were your casualties in the, in the first few days of the penetration phase, overcoming the first, second, and third defensive line? And his answer was, Pochti Palavina. Almost half, every time, every year, regardless of year. Wow. And that's true. But in the tank arm, in the tank and motorized arm, mechanized arm, that is a bit different. Because forward detachment commanders, and by the end of the war, the Soviets are using forward detachments not only to lead tank brigades and mech brigades and tank corps and mech corps and tank armies, but they're also using forward detachments to lead rifle divisions. And the rifle divisions will take a battalion-sized force mounted on trucks or 
armored carriers and send it out well in advance of the division. And the forward detachment's mission is not to recon. Its mission is to fight and seize terrain. And you will see a great deal of flexibility accorded to those commanders and hence the, the most capable commanders given the tasks of, of leading those forward detachments. So you've said that the Germans' the tactical level were generally excellent and that excellence lasted throughout the war. Well, it lasted throughout the war with one qualification. Yeah. It's beginning in late 1943 that Stalin and his general staff fix, try to fix, and I think to a large extent do fix the training system. The school for tank drivers, the anti-tank gunners, tank gunners, you know, all the specialties that they hadn't paid much attention to earlier in the war. They simply put you in a tank and said, drive it. And that that happened more than once. I have commanders complaining our tank drivers aren't trained. They don't know what to do. Hence, we end up in swamps, rivers, and and our even our riflemen, in some instances, haven't been trained in how to use the rifle. I mean, they have something called blocking detachments. And the blocking detachments, we've spoken a lot about their roles in preventing retreats by friendly troops and shooting them if they did retreat. But the other rule of a blocking detachment is to go out when a town is conquered and go through the cellars and attics and, and haystacks of that town and find the warm bodies that can supplement the Red Army. They'll generally be sent back into the training battalions of the divisions. And if they're lucky, they'll be taught how to fire the weapons. But uh, it, it's quite true that by the end of the war, the Russians are running out of slobs. They're scraping the bottom of the barrel and they're using anything that will walk in mm. the Red Army. But their training does become better and more focused by late 43. They never do close the gap totally. You mentioned the German practice of creating these Kampf group and these ad hoc mixed arm formation yep. and that being a, a contributor to their success throughout the war. Can you speak more broadly about what you think made the Germans as effective as they were at the tactical level? Training, unit training. And the German veterans I've talked to called it combat drill. We had combat drill at the company level, the platoon level, the squad level, the battalion level, all the way up. We had combat drill. It was pounded into us in our training. We knew how to react quickly to a situation, to any situation. Now, again, I'm talking in sweeping generalities. As the Wehrmacht finds it harder and harder to get troops, that level deteriorates somewhat. Sure. But it's still there, and it, you can still notice it in most combat. They react quicker in combat to what a combat infantrymen should do in this particular situation than the Russians do. Could you comment on the German and Soviet use of penal battalions? <laughs> well, penal battalions are not new in military history. Sure. Everybody kind of goes, oh my gosh, Russians are using them today, actually. Group Wagner has a lot of penal troops in it. Yeah. I didn't realize the Germans used them as much as they did until I started scrolling through the records of units captured. And the correlation of forces usually have a pretty decent order of battle of the German units facing them down to the, the number of rifles in the unit and so on and so forth. The Russians start using penal battalions as early as 1941. About the same time, they begin using blocking detachments. 
which we talked about before in our misnomer. And they do it because they have to. Desertion is a major problem, especially among untrained or poorly trained recruits. Mm-hmm. And of course, the counter to that is you don't shoot people who run because they're people and you need them at the front. So you put them in a penal battalion and send them back. Kind of like the old, if you've watched the British series, Sharp series, which I enjoyed years ago. It's kind of similar to the Forlorn Hope they used to call in, in Wellington's army in, on the peninsula, the mm-hmm. peninsula campaign of the Napoleonic War. It went into the Forlorn Hope and they expiated their guilt with blood. Mm-hmm. And if they survived, the charges were dropped against them. And this is the same thing that happened in Soviet penal battalions. And you can document them because they're listed in the orders of battle down to division level. Sometimes they're numbered the first penal company, second penal company, third penal company, penal battalion. They're generally lightly equipped with rifles and light and heavy machine guns. They usually have very few automobiles for obvious reasons. You could drive off in one. And the blocking detachments are better equipped. Many of those are NKVD units. They have a heavier complement of machine guns, the old Maxim gun in particular, because they're particularly effective in keeping people in line and preventing them from retreating. And in 1941, there is documented evidences. Who was the general commanded Bryansk Front? Name escapes me momentarily. But anyway, he issues an order that the blocking detachments include artillery battalions. And gives orders for the artillery to fire when his forces withdraw in the face of Guderian's Panzers in October 44. Weren't some of these penal units used as mine clearing units? Yes. Oh, well, not just. (laughs) I've got an order from a tank corps commander. Actually, it's in his, his op order for the operation. And he says, such and such tank brigade, each of the three tank brigades will use their first battalion to clear mines and exploit with their second battalion. The Russians considered it brutal because the Germans used mine-clearing dogs. Yeah. (laughs) I I can't imagine either scene. Just horrific. This is a question from a former guest of the podcast, longtime supporter, Marine Colonel Eric Walters, retired. He said, so you wrote the forward to Jack Rady and Charles Sharp's book, The Death of Moscow, 1941, The Northern Flank. What book would you like to see them write next? What do you think is the, the well, next? Well, they're trying thing? to do, they, they are trying to do, Jack Ratty and Charles Sharp work as a team. And I'm very proud of their work because Jack was a Bolshevik, probably still is, literally a Bolshevik. <laughs> and he wears a, a little Trotsky hat. He's also a superb researcher and doesn't know Russian. And that's where Charles comes in. Charles gets the Russian data for him. I impressed him with my work and the balance of my work. Mm-hmm. And I knew that Jack, although a Bolshevik, is an honest one. And if he got into the records and saw so-and-so was lying, he'd say so. So I encouraged him to do Moscow in the same fashion I did Stalingrad. There are only so many of these things you can live through. writing. <laughs> and uh, so he's been at it now for about 15 years. And the first book he got out was The Northern Flank, and he's working on the Volokolamsk approach. He's working on the other approaches further south to Moscow. And I expect if he lives long enough, we will see subsequent volumes. And I hope he gets a publisher for them because they're worth reading. Yeah, absolutely. Could you talk about some of the notable 
German and Soviet amphibious operations during the war. I know there were various amphibious operations to seize the Baltic Islands, for instance. Yeah, that, yeah it's funny you ask that because when I embarked on my research in 79, I think I spoke about it last time, it was because the Japanese presented to us a list of topics they wanted us to research. And the first topic was Manchuria, obviously. The second topic was airborne. And I did the research survey at Leavenworth on Airborne and later did a book on it. And the third was amphibious. And we never got around to that one. But the Russians did conduct amphibious operations. So one of my colleagues, Jim Gebhardt, has written the best book. It's a Leavenworth paper on the Pitsamo Kirkinus amphibious operation up in the north. And he is, he's, unfortunately, he died several years ago, but he is the expert on Soviet, was the expert on Soviet amphibious operations. Jake Kipp, my other colleague in my office, my chief political analyst, was also a naval specialist. Neither are around now. The Soviets did use amphibious operations in the war. The most notable ones were ones that had political connections. Brezhnev was the commissar for the uh, the operation at Novorossiysk in 1943. Obviously, that and 18th Army got tremendous play because he was the commissar in 18th Army, and he made sure that they covered it when he was premier, or party chief of the Soviet Union. The Baltic Islands, yes, they conducted operations to clear the Germans from the Baltic Islands after the Tallinn offensive, but the resistance was kind of weak because there wasn't much left of Operational Group Narva that it defended Estonia in that terrible period for the Estonians of September, October 44. The Soviets did conduct amphibious operations in the Manchurian campaign. I've written about that in a chapter in my book on August Storm, which is not the code name for the operation, I might add. That code name was coined by my 12-year-old daughter while we were writing between Leavenworth and Lawrence, Kansas, my publisher, and trying to figure out a name for the, for the book, the Leavenworth paper. And she said, why don't you call it August Storm? It was raining, wasn't it? And I said, yeah, <laughs> you're right. That name, August Storm, made it into the Oxford the gazetteer of the Oxford Atlas on World War II, where they had they had August Storm listed as the code name, the Soviet code name for for the Manchurian Offensive, which could not be wronger. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's funny how these things come. It to actually be- appeared in a Russian book, uh, a newer really? Russian book, who used the word August Storm, not realizing that it was coined by a twelve-year-old. Can't make this stuff uh, up. Yep. If we could turn to the Stalingrad campaign for a few questions. That'd be great. You've written what I would consider, I think many would consider the definitive account of the Stalingrad campaign in English. What were some of the big discoveries or revelations you uncovered in your research? Well, first was Zhukov's role in saving the city. Now, Zhukov did not organize the counteroffensive. Yeryomenko proposed the counteroffensive based on the experiences of his Stalingrad front against the Romanians. He said, look, we ought to go after the Romanians because the last time we attacked, they gave way. This was in early October 42, and the Stavka was pushing for another one of the so-called Kutloban offensives, a shallow envelopment of Stalingrad, which they conducted four operations on, and all of them turned into unnecessary bloodlettings. Rokosovsky said, okay, do it again if you have to. He was used to Zhukov's bloodlettings. Yeryomenko said, no, don't, please. Go after them with a broad encirclement. And he recommended using a cavalry corps and a mech corps and linking them up at Kalich. 
Zhukov saw that plan and said, you know, he may have an idea there. He took your Yomanko's plan and he added to it 5th Tank Army, basically two more, three more tank corps and another tank corps in the south. And that was the plan that ultimately governed the Uranus plan. Mm-hmm. But it was Vasilyevsky who worked out the details for that one because Zhukov headed north to do what Stalin thought was more important, which was Operation Mars, getting them away from Moscow. And frankly, Stalin and many of his generals thought the attack at Stalingrad would fail because it had failed before so often. And of course, it didn't fail because it's interesting to look at the effect of the attack by the Southwestern Front on the Romanian Third Army and the effect of the attack on Sixth Army's left flank. Because in the Romanian army sector, the two tank corps, 1st and 16th, and the cavalry corps went right through and you know, didn't have many tanks at the end, but they got through and they linked up with the Southern Panzer. The 26th tank corps, which attacked the Germans, went nowhere and lost most of its tanks in about a week's time to combat, not to mechanical difficulties. So uh, I'm trying to get back. To, I just lost my your initial question. Yeah, just uh, discoveries or revelations that... Revelations, revelations. Zhukov, in fact, did contribute to the Stalingrad victory. There's 100,000 men missing. When you tally up the losses of the strength and losses of 6th Army and 4th Panzer Army, and they were basically encircled along with some Romanians, Croatians. It was a multinational encirclement. But if you add up those and you take the 97 men who marched off into captivity, there's 100,000 lost there. And I don't know what happened to it. They aren't reported among the casualty figures, the German casualty figures, and they aren't reported amongst the prisoners who marched off. My conclusion is they were shot. That kind of surprised me, but it meshes with a, uh, I believe it was in Khrushchev's memoirs of him writing down by Volsky's. Fourth Mech Corps after the battle was over and the encirclement was over. And he, I think this was maybe from Khrushchev's son's memoirs. But in any case, the scene was a bunch of Germans in a ditch being shot by members of Fourth Mech Corps. And Khrushchev ostensibly stopped his vehicle and said, Aren't these prisoners? And Volsky said something. They were. <laughs> and, and moves on. And so, my conclusion is the hundred, the delta of a hundred thousand men who were unaccounted for were essentially shot in the process of the operation wow. after being captured. The other miraculous things about Stalingrad is the fact that Paulus's plan to take the city, actually it wasn't Paulus, it was Vikes' plan, was sound. It was sound, and it came within a hairbreadth of of achieving what it, what it achieved. If it wasn't for Zhukov's attack on the flank of Fourteenth Panzer Corps. There would have been no fighting in the city itself. The Panzer Corps would have captured the factory district and the city would have been occupied. The other fact I discovered was by virtue of the German occupation of Stalingrad or involvement in Stalingrad and the drive into the Caucasus and the capture of the oil fields at Maikop, the Soviets ran out of second sort fuel. And it was apparent in the battle for Stalingrad, the defense of Stalingrad, but it was even more apparent and more telling on the Soviet offensive to drive the Germans back and collapse them in January, February 43, because they had no second sort fuel. And without second sort fuel, you couldn't move this sort of tank. 
Mm. In other words, the tank, the fuel shortages created by the German operations really inhibited the effectiveness of Soviet forces in the counteroffensives. Your comments about von Paulus are reminding me of our get together, I don't know, maybe it's 2012, 2013. And I think you were working on your Stalingrad trilogy then. And I, yes. I think you had said, I don't know if you had had a copy of maybe it was von Paulus's diary or the diary of his chief of staff or somebody, but does that ring a bell at all? So I, I could have sworn you said that you'd, I think you'd had some German general's diary or, or, you know, similar document and and it had some interesting I guess revelations for lack of a better term does that ring a bell at all well yeah it brings several bells but i'm not sure which which, yeah, bell, yeah. It could, which, could which be. bell you're talking about schmidt was his chief of staff okay and, yeah I'm, and, I'm, the cor- and the correspondence between paulus and schmidt and monstein and his chief of staff yes is near is near constant yeah okay uh, Monstein comes down very late from Leningrad. He's given Army Group Don. I forget the date now, but he's given Army Group Don, and they have already made the decision. Paulus has already requested permission to break out and been denied the permission by Hitler. And it becomes very clear, very clear that after being denied within several days, there's no chance you're going to break out because. Your horses are all down in the in the, the North Caucasus region for wintering, and you've got no no means for withdrawing any of your equipment out with you. Gas, excuse me, that's that's my phone that's ringing, and I got to take this. Hold on, just a second. No problem. Okay, back to Schmidt and Paulus. When I was writing the Stalingrad book, maybe this is what you're referring to. I suddenly realized I just saw an ad. I don't know where the heck I learned this from, but. Somebody advertised they, they found in an attic in Germany the records of Sixth Army. It was $100 for two volumes. And I bought the whole darn thing. I, you know, I can't read German very well. And I had, had a German count who volunteered to help me with translations. And I had my German Lanzer who helped me with the retired professor at Rutgers who was in the German army. Lothar Zeidler, who helped me with the German translations. But anyway, we, we got all those documents translated. And the arguments went on for a long time about, can you break out? How far can you break out? How far do we want you to break out? How far can we get from you if you do break out? Can we bring enough supplies to help you break out? What is your fuel situation? Can you move your trucks and tanks? What few are left if you break out? And so on and so forth. It's very complicated, but all of this, when you search through it, showed that one, Paulus was frustrated. He had every reason to be frustrated because he got denied permission to break out when he perhaps could have. And that would have certainly hankered me, if nothing else. And that permission continued to be denied. And then he gets accused of refusing to retreat. And the accusations go back and forth as somebody's trying to blame somebody for what transpired at Stalingrad. But there's enough blame all around to go to every party involved. Because now, I, I don't know if that answers your question or not. No, I, I, that, that absolutely, that rings a bell for me. I do remember you talking about the records of the Sixth Army. I think you'd also talked about the correspondence between the various generals you mentioned. Right. Uh, based on. Your research, analysis, benefit of hindsight, do you think Sixth Army could have 
broken out? Only if they had done so immediately when they sent, when the Soviets opened the attack and the tanks began exploiting. Mm-hmm. The Germans very quickly rounded up all of their Panzer divisions, what was left of their Panzer divisions in Stalingrad. And it was the 14th Panzer Division, the 16th Panzer Division. And I'd have to go back and look at my numbers again, but it came to a force of about 35 or 40 tanks. And all, oh yeah, 48th Panzer Corps, Brump Group. And they sent them out to try to cut off the Soviet armor as it advanced. Now, unfortunately, by the time they, they reached the advancing Soviet armor, it had been attrited, but not to the point it would be attrited in five days. It had been attrited to roughly half strength. And the 16th Tank Corps, pretty much, uh, yeah, 15th Tank Corps pretty much fends off what little armor came at, what wasn't combined. The three headquarters of the three Panzer divisions did not form a single command, they formed three commands. And so uh, they were conducting this thing piecemeal. But if they had, if, if he had done the, the trick of what the Germans often did, leave covering forces, leave forces to cover withdrawal, if he had put everything on the road west, then they probably could have gotten out. But the window closed in about three or four days. And certainly by the time the Soviets got them encircled, there was a moment of maybe a day or so of weakness when they might have gotten something out. But whatever got out would have been severely damaged and Kind of like the forces that got out when First Panzer Army was encircled in, I think it was in, in late '44. They got out without their weapons and equipment, mm-hmm. which mm-hmm. which means you got to find out how to re-equip them before you can put them back into combat again. Yeah, could you talk about the Soviet storm groups that were formed and and fought in Songrad? And do you see any parallels between? the storm groups and the German stormtrooper units of World War One. Ooh, I'd have to go back and, and check on this. I know what you're talking about, the use of assault groups in 1918, I guess. Yeah, they've got a whole bunch of, of weapons at the small unit level. They yeah. are designed to you know punch a hole in a defensive position and like water kind of flow around. Basically, that's the solution to penetrating a prepared defense. Yeah. Now, realizing, you know, the, the battlefield is different, the circumstances are different, the weaponry is, is changed. But did the Soviet storm groups in Stalingrad have any similarities to the German stormtrooper units? Yes, in the sense that they were task organized and mm. they had picked and, and contained a, a number of different weapons. And they were designed to do what in a normal offensive, the artillery would do by blowing away the first three three trench lines in a, in a three kilometer by one kilometer box. It's nothing new. I have, I mark it, a, a copy of the translation of the 1944 penetration of a fortified region, the Soviet manual, the Ustav. There was an Ustav in the late 30s on it. There was an Ustav in the 1970s. I haven't got my hands on it yet, but They've always published Ustavs on this. And what I got asked a question by somebody about three weeks ago who called me and said, hey, can you share with me the current Russian use of assault groups in Ukraine associated with Bakhmut? And I said, I have no idea because I'm not, I don't know how Group Wagner is organized. But uh, yes, basically in short, the Soviet and the Russian army have always had a manual on the assault of a penetration of a fortified defense. 
And lo and behold, I just got in the mail from my Russian contact, I hope the FBI are listening, a copy of their most recent book, the uh, CAST, the Center for the Study of Strategic Technology. That uh, I have been working with their director, Ruslan Pukov, for probably 25 years, cooperating on passing information back and forth. Mostly information I request from him and help getting into the archives when I needed it. But he sent the book to me, and guess what it is? It's a book on the penetration of a fortified position. Interesting. Use of assault groups. Yeah. It's all in Russian. And I don't think, I know you can't buy it in a bookstore, but it underscores the point that, yes, that they have been using it. And just like the Germans used it to try to escape the burden of trench warfare in World War One, this is the way you you escape the burden of fighting in a city. Mm. Now, Trikov, in the many, many things he wrote after, after Stalingrad, after his army became Eight Guards Army, which he did about a month later, he had his people write very detailed reports on how we, we handled it. Now, they were more concerned with defense because basically they, they were holding on to Stalingrad City with a force estimate maybe a 3,000 men against a force of roughly 100,000 men. And if you use the three, if you organize the 3,000 properly into little little storm groups and occupying strong points in the wreckage, they can do amazing things. Yeah. If we could turn to the last year of the war, I've got some questions about that. Mm -hmm. Did the Soviets, in your view, have to fight the Battle of Berlin? And if not, what other options did they have? Well, they had to fight the Battle of Berlin if they were to end the war because that's where Hitler was seated. The question is, could they have done it in February, mid-February 1945, or did they have to wait till the 16th of April 1945? And I'll give you a, an answer to that question. On the 13th, 12th and 13th, 9th, 10th, 11th, 12th, and 13th of February, orders were given to the 1st Belarusian and 1st Ukrainian Front to begin operations that culminated in the seizure of, of Berlin. We have those. Matter of fact, they're in the war experience volumes on the Upper Silesian operation and the Lower Silesian operation. All of a sudden, on the 14th of February, Stalin cancels the order. He says, no, you will not. You will not attack Berlin. You will attack the flanks into Pomerania and Silesia. First and second Belarusian front going north, first Ukrainian front going south. What the heck happened? I mean, yeah. why did he change that? Well, if you look in the, the documents, uh, the State Department documents on Yalta, you'll find some interesting things. One, the Yalta Agreement divided Germany up into four parts, actually three parts, American, Russian, and British zones. We later gave the, the French part of our zone. But if you look at the detail, it left something out. Didn't involve Ostmark. Yeah. Austria was not included when that agreement was signed. Jalta finished the 13th. The next day, Stalin returned to Moscow and ordered to halt on Berlin. The next day, he issued the orders, new orders for the attack on the Pomeranian Silesia. And he also issued a whole series of new orders ordering an advance on Vienna. The capital of Osmark, yeah. not covered by the Alta Agreement. He sent 
to Hungary, and I've done this, this analysis, where did the strategic reserves flow after the 14th of February, 1945? And they flowed almost entirely to Hungary, including the Ninth Guards Army, which was a new Guards Army, which had been an NKVD Army and then the 70th Army. It had been an airborne army. And that one goes down there with specific instructions, do not use in defensive operations. We have that document. The Soviets absorbed the Balotan, German Balotan offensive, and immediately Ninth Guards Army is released as our Sixth Tank Army and the Cavalry Mechanized Group. They open the uh, advance on Vienna. Vienna Falls on the 15th of April, and the bombardment announcing the beginning of the Berlin operation begins on 16 April. You can make your own conclusions, but my conclusion is that Stalin decided, nope, we are going to go ahead and take the Ostmark because the Allies forgot about it, and we're going to get it. Now, just to add a footnote to that, 1964, when Khrushchev was producing books that in their candor, rival that of Glasnost. In other words, was allowing, was allowing Russian authors to write on things that had been verboten before, and that included Barbarossa mm. and the losses of Barbarossa. He was essentially de-Stalinizing before Gorbachev came along and de-Stalinized. He approved a book by Chuikov. The commander of 62nd Army of Stalingrad, 8th Guards Army in Berlin. And the, it was a famous book, and it's still being produced, Konietz Trichtenberreicher, The End of the Third Reich. And I have all those books. In, but suddenly, in, in late 1964, days after Khrushchev's removal, that book was pulled from print, the first edition. And I was wondering, why the hell was it brought, why was it taken out of print? Well... They had released, as part of the first volume publishing program, they had released a copy to the Brits and told, I forget the name of the press, to put out a paperback version called The End of the Third Reich. I have a copy of that book. And if you crack the pages of that book, it's got a chapter 13 in it. I think it's 13. It might be 11. But it's called Mistakes Were Made. And it castigates Stalin over conducting the operation in April rather than February because it cost Tchaikov over 200,000 men. That chapter was deleted from all subsequent editions of that book, Konyet's Third Reich, mm -hmm. the end of the Third Reich. My conclusion is that it was Stalin's decision based on Yalta, and uh, Tchaikov's book was just a bit of evidence that uh, was going to expose that, and they withdrew it for that reason. Could you talk about how the Soviets applied what they had learned at places like Stalingrad, Kharkov, to the battle for Berlin? In many instances, they didn't. In particular, the way they conducted the operation in the first place, they didn't. And this is, this is why I call the Battle of Berlin a ceremonial battle. This is it. We got him in his lair. We're going to crush the lair. We're going to do it by brute force, and we're going to do it frontally. And of course, Zhukov's Belarusian Front had the honor of doing it frontally. Actually, and of course, they do it frontally. They use searchlights to blind the Germans. Uh, they commit two tank armies prematurely. The tank armies get hung up on the, the fortifications of the Zilov 
heights and take horrendous casualties. Panzerfaust worked very nicely against tanks. Yeah. And then they had to grind their way to Berlin. And I, I'm sure Konyev, commanding 1st Ukrainian Front, is heartily offended by the way they conduct that offensive. But he, he never, never wrote his unexpurgated feelings about it. I'm sure Rokossovsky, commander of the first Belarus, second Belarusian front, was also offended. It was supposed to be a double envelopment of Berlin, where the second tank army for the first Belarusian front was to swing around Berlin from the north, and the third and fourth guards tank armies from the Ukrainian front were supposed to go around from the south and west, and they were to link up and take it relatively bloodlessly, but this is Zhukov's chance to shine in Zhukovian fashion, and he does. Now, having said that, they no doubt used the assault group tactics that they're supposed to use in the city, but city fighting is going to be costly. It, it by very, its very nature, is going to be costly, and they do organize. And we have accounts of how the tank brigades operated in the city itself and then broke down into small tank companies and had fire and covering platoons, and they had anti-tank guns with them and so on and so forth. So it wasn't that they threw all the lessons out. They just kind of took the city in a ceremonial fashion with Zhukov providing the bulk of the firepower and ceremony and reaping the bulk of the casualties, and in turn, Zhukov reaping the bulk of the casualties in the first Belarusian front, which he presented. And there was a competition. I was just about to ask, because I've heard because you... uh, Because there's the famous scene in Moscow where Zhukov and Konyev are arguing over who will take the city, that Zhukov takes the red marker, the line had not crossed into Berlin, and he extends it through Berlin, implying that whoever gets it can have it. Ryskovsky, another Russian I cooperated with and who worked with me since the 80s, actually, in the Academy of Sciences, a historian of the war, and wrote some articles from my journal for me. He claims that at one point during that offensive, Zhukov orders 1st Belarusian Front's artillery to fire on 3rd Guards tank army as it comes into Berlin as part of the 1st Ukrainian Front. I don't doubt it. I can't prove it, but I don't doubt it, and I haven't gotten to the point in the archives for Berlin yet. I'm still working, mucking around in 1942. But you're talking about intentional friendly fire. Intentionally shooting at his own troops. Wow. The troops of another commander who was in competition with Konya for the city. Wow. Amazing. Nothing will amaze you about the Eastern Front. I have a report sent by a battalion of one of the rifle divisions defending Stalingrad. And their task of the week was to test a new FOG flamethrower. FOG means F-O-G is the acronym for the flamethrower. And this thing came with instructions. It said, do not use within 50 meters of the objective. Have your troops in protective clothing any closer than that, and so on and so forth. And the little report says, we tested the FOG flamethrower. We knocked out two German bunkers but recommend you have a hundred feet protection zone because we lost half our troops. Oh God. So it, it's things like that. You know, that, that, that's a very, very minor detail in a, in, a, in a lot of tumbling details that are cascading out of the archives that you'll run into. There's much to be learned about this war and I'm just scratching the surface and I can't find anybody else who'll scratch with me. 
<laughs> well, I, you know, I'm, I'm hoping uh, that this podcast maybe serves as a call to arms and interest people and helping you scratch more of that surface. You've talked about the seventh and eighth guards tank armies that the Soviets yes. create toward the end of the war. Yes. You, you've yes. called these a, quote, pocket force, unquote. If yeah. things went south with the allies, Western allies, yeah. you talk about these formations and what you think their purpose was. I can't talk much because these were, I made that judgment based on the immediate post-war dispositions of the Red Army. A lot of it came from intelligence sources that were, when I was at Leavenworth, I tried to have as much stuff declassified out of the mezzanine or the library, which was the classified section there, because it's supposed to be declassified after 20 years, I think was the date. And this material ought to be out there. So anyway, I, I began routinely declassifying various reports. And a lot of those reports were reports, some captured Soviet documents, some assessments of Soviet positioning. And the University of Omsk and a couple of authors out there have done some excellent work on post-war force structure. But anyway, boil it all down when you put the whole thing into a goulash. It comes out that they did create two guards armies, 7th and 8th guards, tank armies. And they created them in the Carpathian military district and the Belarusian military district. And they did it. They were there when the war ended. I have not gone back to verify it because I haven't done the 1945 documents. And I don't know. I know the documents go to 46 in, in Manchuria, but I don't know how far they go in the Russian archives into the Cold War. But anyway, the configuration of GSFG well, I'm not going to get into that because I'm talking off the top of my head and trying to do it from memory. If you read my Soviet conduct of war, you'll see where the Soviets thought considerably about during the post-war years, mobilizing new tank armies to use in operations. The 7th and the 8th, there was evidence for, we had a 1st, 2nd, 3rd, and 4th Guards armies that actually existed for many years in GSFG, and two of those went into cadre status during the Cold War. But 7th and 8th were obviously there in 45, and my presumption was that those were being held in advance. What I have to go back now is take a look at the records of the tank corps that weren't included in the tank armies to see which ones, if any, made it into uh, 8th and 9th Guards tank armies. So that is a judgment that has not been confirmed. Got it. A related question. You've said elsewhere that in terms of numbers, force structure, experience, military, theoretical development, the Soviets are about two years ahead of the Western Allies by you know, March, April 1945, yeah. and that the Allies, right. they do not want to get into a fight with the Soviets. It may not end well. I know we've got the United States, Western Allies have, have air power to a degree, the Soviets don't, but could you comment on the relative development and the, the state of the forces at the end of the war. The Soviets, where they're at in their development, military theoretical development, and the Western allies. Yeah, I, uh, I, I reached that judgment after when the army was looking for a combined campaign to use in teaching. TRADOC was, was uh, looking for it. I first went out and hunted for one that could be used. I focused on patents. Lorraine campaign. Mm -hmm. Patton was the only general, in my opinion, who developed operational maneuver to the degree that the Soviets developed it during the war. 
that most of the other generals and commanders were rooted to World War I techniques, linear fronts, even advances, and so on. And Patton was the only one who broke that mold and went for what we would, what the Russians would call deep operations. And got punished for it quite often by being, by have, having his, this was coalition warfare and you had to deal with Brits, yeah. uh, Eisenhower had to deal with Brits and so on. So you, you couldn't do the kinds of things. Stalin was running a different type ship than, than we were running. Sure. But in terms of the utilization of armor and mechanized forces, recognizes the fact that, that our leg divisions were often truck-mounted divisions, and the Soviets didn't have many truck-mounted divisions. And when they did, they were relying a lot on Dodges and Stutabakers and Fords, but also an amazing amount of gases in their own vehicles, too. We, have, we now have those numbers, too, as a matter of fact. That we were at war's end at about where they were in the summer of 42 when they were toying with the creation of first tank corps, and then in September, mechanized corps. Mm -hmm. And we did the experimentation in Europe that they did during the winter campaign of 42-43, trying to figure out what should be in a tank army and what should be in a, how should we organize, you know, group pop-off, little Saturn offensive where they take four tank corps and send them out in shotgun fashion separately with, mm -hmm. with no real communications between them. And so they test all kinds of combinations. And none of them are satisfactory until summer 43 when they feel the first tank army that's made up principally of tanks and not tanks, cavalry, and infantry. So we're, we're about two years behind it, in, in my judgment, except for Patton. And we never saw what Patton could do because he was never allowed to do it. Mm -hmm. Have you ever visited the Russian military history website, I Remember? And if so, what are your thoughts on it? My two sites I go to are Yandex and Pamyat Noroda which is memory of the people. The Pamyat Noroda, there's also Padvig Noroda, the victory of the people. And somewhere embedded in those, as I remember, because when you get into those websites, you can either call up the military operations, you can call up participants in the war, and that I presume is the I remember, and find out what is to be known about your relative who is in the war, if it can be known. That's that's ever changing because of military archaeology and uh, and the huge losses in the first two years that weren't documented. But Pamyat Naroda is the one one that is most reliable because if you know any Russian at all, you can get into that thing and you can call up the records of whatever unit you want using a Russian abbreviation, and you can establish whatever time frame you want by simply manipulating the numbers and the time block. So you could ask for it for four years if you want to get a million documents on a given battalion or brigade or division or army or front. I haven't found Stavka yet, but they they published a four-volume set on Stavka orders about 20 years ago. It's not complete, but it's got most of them in it. Yandex is more flexible, a little, little different. Yandex, if you Go into Yandex, RU, the Russian version, and type in the Russian abbreviation for the unit and Boyevoy Put, Paruski, in Russian. You will get all the independent websites. There's a World War II website, a, well, four or five. The Wikipedia is on there too, Russian Wikipedia. But then, if you, then, then you will also find on that one Pamyat Noroda for the same unit. Mm. And if you hit that Pamyat Noroda, 
it will take you into the same chart you would have gotten to had you gone into the Pamyat Naroda sign and highlighted military operations and highlighted the documents section. So you can get into the thing in through two ways. What are your thoughts on how the Nazi-Soviet war has been portrayed in film and TV in the West? Are there any movies or films you find historically accurate and worth watching? Or are you generally dissatisfied with what's been produced? Okay, well, I <laughs> that's funny you ask that question because in the midst of working on Stalingrad, I got a call from Paramount Pictures. At the time, we're taking care of my mother who fell ill and lived with us for the last five years. And uh, we couldn't leave the house because we, my wife was providing her with home health care, which is, I, I, no, I'm doing for my wife. But in any case, they called and said, we're doing a film on Stalingrad. We want you to look at it and endorse it. And I said, you can't. And they said, what do you mean we can't? I said, you can't do it on Stalingrad. It's impossible. You can't do it. And they said, well, I'll tell you, give us a chance, will you? And I said, well, I can't, I can't go without taking my mother with us in a wheelchair. And she hadn't been to a CinemaScope movie in 30 years. She was 85. In any case, to make a long story short, they flew the film out to Philadelphia. They put it in a van, moved to Carlisle. We have about four theater complex down in one of the shopping centers. They opened that sucker up, opened the popcorn stand, which was nice of them, brought in donuts and showed that film to us. Just myself, my wife, and my mother. It was Enemy at the Gates. Uh -huh. And I put my mother down right in front because <laughs> she'd never seen a cinemascope thing. And she came out of that thing with her mouth wide open. Yeah. Uh, I was struck by it. And I sent a note back to him saying, not only did you capture it, but you essentially captured the first two year of, years of war in that one film. I said, you destroyed a, destroyed a German city to do it. And they filmed that on the Elbe River, obviously after the wall came down. And they destroyed an entire factory district in the process of filming the movie. The Elbe is about the same width as the Volga at Stalingrad. The opening scenes of the 284th Rifle Division, which is what Zaitsev was in, in the Ural Mountains, all the way to the opening scenes of the train cars coming into Stalingrad and unloading the troops and the troops one third of which had rifles and the other two thirds didn't. Right on the mark, going across the Volga River under fire, right on the mark, getting into the city and fighting. My mother says, why were the Germans shooting, shooting at the Russians with the Maxim, those big funny looking guns? I said, those were blocking detachments and they're using the Maxim machine guns to prevent their own troops from retreating. Mm -hmm. Then of course they got into the Zaitsev battle with the German sniper from Berlin. They did more in the first 10 minutes of that, 10, 15 minutes of that movie to accurately portray what happened in the first year of war. And you could quite jam into a movie. Yeah. And it, it struck me. You know, they it, it, it really did a good job on it. The 13th Guards Rifle Division, which was an elite division that held out in the center city, Rodimsev's division, which got all the fame because he was a Slav from Moscow and the 284th commander was a Ukrainian. That division had been destroyed two months before by the German army in the initial stages of Operation Blau and had 35 men left when it went to the Urals to refit. It refit in about five weeks, should have taken three months, and was sent into Stalingrad with 
one regiment with rifles. That was the elite 13th Guards. So a lot of, that's my short answer. Now, the, the Germans have done a film as well. It's called Stalingrad. Yeah, I've seen and that. You've probably seen it, and it starts yeah. in northern Italy. I'm trying to remember, remember the division it is that ends up in the encirclement. But in, in any case, that is a very brutal anti-war film put together mm -hmm. by the Germans in the 60s that is effective. I still have etched into my scene the Germans in foxholes in the deep snow fighting against a Soviet tank brigade conducting a sortie and a tank round takes the Germans' bottom half of his body off. Literally, just takes all you have is the guy standing there holding a rifle, waving his arms with his top side of his torso. That's a brutally frank film. Yeah. There are effective movies, but I've also got the Soviet series that they prepared in the 70s. Matter of fact, I played it so many times, now I'm afraid that it's on a DVD. I'm afraid the tape's going to go bad on it. But they did an excellent series where actors who looked like the commanders played the parts of the commanders. But a lot of that is BS, I mean, mm. frankly. It's, again, a portrayal of what worked and, and a, a ignoring of what didn't. Sure. If we could turn to some miscellaneous questions on the Nazi-Soviet war, that'd be great. The first right. is, what are some errors, misconceptions, or faulty interpretations that you continue to see in the literature? Oh, as a matter of, matter of fact, I had a, a good example of that occur last night when a colleague in one of the Beltway Bandit Corporations sent me a note saying, have you seen the new book by Wheatley, the British historian Wheatley? which explodes the myth of Prokhorovka. And I said, oh, my God, you got to be kidding me. You know, I have not seen the book, but the myth of Prokhorovka was destroyed back in 2010 to 2013. And it's long been realized that Prokhorovka was, in fact, the narrow engagement of Prokhorovka between 5th Guards Tank Army and SS Panzer Corps was a one-sided effort, which resulted in the, in the destruction of over half of Fifth Guards Tank Army's tanks in a matter of two days, and the loss of a, of a handful of German tanks on the other side. That myth was broken in 2013 by Valerie Samuelin's many books that have been translated into English, and it was understood to have been broken. So basically, myths tend to, to last. Mm -hmm. If you don't read up on a subject thoroughly, the myths tend to persist and come back and return and return. And there are many of them. I guess the most notable one is the business of, were the Soviets going to attack the Germans in 1941? This myth has been around since the early 1990s, and people have chopped its head off over and over again. And nevertheless, it continues to emerge intact every two or three years. You have to strike it back down again, like cutting the heads off a hydra. You've exploded that myth several times, including in, was it Stumbling Colossus? Yes, I wrote Stumbling Colossus specifically to uh, refute that myth. Yeah, and yet it persists. It persists because our understanding of the Soviets expanded greatly between 1970, roughly 1960 and 1990 because of the work of John Erickson, the work of Chris Donnelly, and finally the work that I was doing. And what we were doing was filling in the blank spots, the some 60 to 70 percent of the blank spots that existed in the war, because the Germans wrote primarily about 41 to 43, and then just kind of 
cast it aside as not worthy of study thereafter for obvious reasons. And the Russians, on the other hand, took their record and expunged all the negative aspects from it and published that for years. And uh, what my first book that I wrote in 1995 on a, on a actually in, in night, I wrote on Manchuria and for the Japanese, but that was in, in the uh, army itself. In 1995, I published the Battle of Kharkov book, which was one of the first forgotten battles that was finally remembered. And I've been doing that ever since, basically. Of the many books you've written, do you have a favorite? And why is that your favorite, if you have one? Yes, I do. Uh, my, my favorite is in 1990, one and two, when I was director of FEMSO, one of my, my students came to me. He was on the faculty, of a major at the time, and had studied and read everything that I'd written and my class notes that I had used. He said, look, let's go ahead and do a single volume on the war. Well, it, that evolved into when Titans clashed. Mm -hmm. I didn't write it. He wrote it from my notes. And I sat at my director's desk and in my spare time, edited it and cleaned it up as, as best I could. That came out in 95 and became a, a bestseller for the University of Kansas Press. I always wanted to get back to that one because that one was a quickie. It was uh, from the hip. And there were many things in it that were not either not fully explained or not correct. So I went back in 2015 and I revised and expanded that one, which went from about a 300 page book to a 600 page book. And that I just, I said, will probably be my capstone for my single volume history of the war. And it basically has stood as that. And I'm kind of proud of it. Since then, I've been doing these massive tomes on single operations, which really don't give you uh, in their own right, an understanding of what transpired during the war. Yeah, going back to When Titans Clashed, I think that was the first book of yours I read and my introduction to your work, and it's had quite an effect on me, and I've recommended it to anybody who will, who will listen. Fantastic volume. And I've got the revised edition, which I haven't dug into yet, but I'm looking forward to, to doing so. Well, when you read that, you will find that there is a heck of a lot that was not in the original version that, that I added at the end. And I would say that if the original version sold X number of, I wouldn't even guess how many copies it sold, but that was fine. But the problem is between 1995 and 2015, interest in things Soviets so deteriorated that the sales of that first, let me call it incorrect volume, were about 10 times higher than the sales of the revised version that came out in 2015. And, and that sort of saddens me because there is so much new that needs to be learned from that new book. Sure. Well, we'll definitely include a link to the new version in the uh, episode notes. Sir, what's your advice to today's young scholars of the Soviet Nazi war? Well, first off, my advice is learn to read Russian to a greater extent than you do now. The problem is we have a problem in academe. The problem in academe is the subject of war is now considered unfit for study. It's part of the political correctness that's come to dominate the country since the 1980s. And because of that, if you look at the, it, I remember I, I went down to my daughter's graduation at the University of North Carolina when she got her master's degree. And at that time, in the mid-90s, some of the old professors who've been around for years who were experts in their field were still hanging on. But if you look at the topics that were being proposed for study on PhDs that you find at the end of a graduation 
leaflet, you look at it, you say, well, come on now, this is all gender history. This is all this. This is all that. These are not things that is going that are going to help educate the American electorate or their leaders on the fact that war has occurred and is occurring and no doubt will occur down the road. And if you're if you're not reading about wars, if you don't study war, you can't fight a war. And of course, uh, they would turn the argument around and say, yes, if we don't study a war, we won't ever fight a war. Hmm. And that's a very dangerous concept to have. And it it's resulted in a vast reduction in the number of thorough military studies being done by graduate students and in the abolition of many of the uh, history programs and military history programs in most colleges and universities. So it's very hard now for someone to get a language like I did and then apply it to studying and trying to reveal the truth. If we could talk about that a little more, I've read in articles and talked to academics and other folks, and there seems to be this divide between folks who are, you know, they see military history as mostly what I might call traditional military history. It's operational. It's, it's focused on battles battles. and leaders. Exactly. Leaders. Yes. And there's a newer version of military history. That's more focused on social aspects, society, as you mentioned, gender studies and related topics. Is there a way that we can bridge this gap or that you see the newer military history somehow getting tied to traditional military history in, in a way that, that can benefit both fields and you know maybe we can get past this this deadlock. There is really a, a simple way of doing that. The simple way of doing that is understanding that war is not just a series of battles and leaders. Mm-hmm. That's the concrete nature of it when it's conducted, but it is shaped and it is always affected by social issues, political issues, and, and other issues. Sure. And you cannot study the the German-Soviet war, for example, without understanding the impact it's having on society or the impact society and economics are having on the military. Of course, yeah. Uh, There are those dimensions, but the problem is when you throw out one of those dimensions, the battles and leaders dimension, then you basically throw out the results of all those other influences on the nature of war. Yeah. What can... Marines, soldiers, other service members learn from studying the German-Soviet war. And if you had any tips or advice on where they should start, could you share those? Read widely. Uh, Now, I know every military school I've been to has had an approved reading list. And most colleges and universities have approved reading lists. And those reading lists are shaped by there's something called outcome-based history. And I, I found this out back in the in the 70s when my father, who had taught high school for 30 years and was chairman of the history department in Porchester, New York, he went to Albany. This is right after I came back from Vietnam. He went up to Albany where they were talking about syllabi and how we should teach history. And he came back holding his head. And he said, we are in trouble. And in 30 years, we are going to be in even greater trouble because he said they are instituting something called outcome-based education. Outcome-based education means that you define the man you are trying or the lady you are trying to educate 
and what you want them to do. And then you, you teach to create that person. In other words, education should be a natural process that informs you so you can make your own decisions. And in this instance, it was going to be shaped so that you would essentially be what he called indoctrinated. Mm-hmm. Now, my father was in the 30s, as so many were, he actually flirted with Marxism because it was a time of great economic struggle in the West. And there were serious questions about whether the track we were on was right. He did that, ultimately studied under Sidney Hook at York University, the great Marxist philosopher who's written many books on the subject. It's no coincidence that in the wake of what happened in World War II in the late 40s and early 50s, they suddenly became aware that what they were pursuing as a possible God governing future human organization, that is socialism, they were in fact studying a monster that was a gateway to totalitarianism of a new sort that was more effective than even right-wing, if you want to call Nazis right-wing, and don't forget that Hitler was a national socialist. Mm -hmm. And basically, he said in short that we are trying to shape man into a person, body politic, that does not understand how the world works. And that's very dangerous. And uh, I I keep pointing out to people that uh, his prediction came true and it's coming true right now. Why should U.S. service members study the Great Patriotic War, the Eastern Front today? Well, you almost need to look at World War I and World War II as a a single bet, because uh, as Ferdinand Foch said at the end of World War I, we don't have a peace, we have an armistice for 30 years. And he was right on the mark. The 20th century probably saw more deaths or as many deaths proportionally in the entire population of Europe and Asia, for that matter, that you had since the uh, Black Death of the medieval period. You don't want to repeat that. And one of the dangers of the Cold War was the fact that one of the happy events of the Cold War was it remained cold and never turned hot. But what happens when you remove that understanding of the horrors of war, and war is horrible, and make it more acceptable to mankind. I've noticed in private conversations with individuals since last February, and before that, for for that matter, there have been folks who have said, hey, now we have our Cold War. Isn't that great? We now can do to the Russian Federation what we did to the Soviet Union. We destroyed it. Well, we didn't destroy it. It destroyed itself, and it agreed to things that in in ordinary times couldn't be agreed to. And and it was one of those strange events in history that was very fortunate for mankind. And I hope the people have wisdom enough these days not to let this current struggle drift into something that neither they nor the population understand the consequences of. We'll go back to the to the war. One comment on the war itself. Since the Second World War and the war on the Eastern Front is the largest portion of that war, or at least the bloodiest and most horrific portion of that war, it is necessary to study it, military leaders, to give them perspective on what war can do to both parties, because it in fact ruined both parties in the course of that five years of war. What are areas of that war that we still know relatively little about? Where would you like to see research done? 
Well, I would certainly like to see the research I've begun on so-called forgotten battles continued, primarily because they're no longer forgotten. And I keep having people come to me and I, I market books and studies on forgotten battles and, and they include in their requests, we got to get information on this operation or that operation, Lublin Brest, for example, the Soviet march on Warsaw in 44. And I go back to them and say, this is not a forgotten battle. This has been written about. And as a matter of fact, all the forgotten battles that you can possibly identify, at least that I've identified, you can now research because the archives are open if you can read Russian. Mm -hmm. And they do not understand that. And most can't read Russian. What are you working on now? I am working for my own therapy, largely. Doing 24-7 healthcare duty is strenuous and exceedingly time-consuming and, for me, very important. Many people don't realize how important it is, nor do they share my view that you ought to do it in the first place. But what I've done is I have finished up the research on my last trilogy that I was doing on Operation Don, the operation that began in January '43 and extended to February, and encompassed the Transcaucasus region, the, the Rostov region, and the Donbass region. And I had published two books, Operation Don's Main Attack on the, on the Advance on Warsaw, which was extremely revealing and thought-provoking. And I also did the, the book on the attempts by the Soviets to destroy Army Group A in the Caucasus that came very close to succeeding but failed. And my third volume, which would have been the most important given what's happened in the last year, was Operation Don's Right Wing, which what happened to or why did the Soviets try to conduct a massive offensive into the Donbass region and destroy Army Group Don? I've translated all the Soviet documents. It's about 600 pages. But I have very sketchy German information. I've studied the operation before. I have the basic strengths and actions of the Germans down because much of that has been published. But I have not had time to put it into a combined narrative. So I said, where do I go from here that I can go retreat to my office and regroup to do the work I'm doing now? And I've basically taken on the task of long term studying the daily strengths losses and provisioning of Soviet tank armies and tank and mechanized corps throughout the entire war. Now, I don't think I'll ever finish that, but I have just finished the portion from May 1942 to December 31st, 1942. It comes to some 500 pages of statistics and strengths nearly on a daily basis and losses nearly on a daily basis from the operational reports and operational summaries and combat reports of all the units involved, which are now online. I've extended that in skeletal form out to September 1943, and the lessons there are revealing, very revealing. I mean, this is where I, where I learned that the Soviet Army was almost as frantic in the summer of 43 about a potential German offensive, which matured at Kursk, as they were about Barbarossa in retrospect and Blau when it occurred in 42. Hmm. And so stability didn't really set in and the Soviets didn't really have the time to take care to train and prepare their troops 
and sustain them properly until late 1943. And then that became the pattern that dominated in 1944 and 45. Now, what I haven't done is I haven't gone into those records in late 43, 44, and 45 as yet, but I hope to if I live that long. Well, we will be cheering you on, sir. I know you've got a Herculean task ahead of you, but if anybody can do it, I, I think it's you. I would like help. I've been trying to recruit historians since the mid-1970s, and that recruiting effort has miserably failed because they just aren't out there now, especially now. Well, I will uh, shake the tree, uh, as it were, and and see if we can maybe find some folks, maybe some promising grad students who are uh, interested in this aspect of the war. Well, in this regard, it would be very, very useful to stimulate war gamers operations and war gamers studies because those are the only folks now that realize that the devil of all this is in the detail right sir in 1988 you founded the journal of soviet military studies now the journal of slavic military studies could you talk about what led you to start the journal and what are some of the more noteworthy or interesting pieces it's published well it's a good question actually the chief of staff of the army decided that it was time to have an open source analysis organization working for him. The 80s were an enlightened period by army leadership. And we had a lot of generals in senior positions, TRADOC, Mind Arms Command, and in the chief's position in Washington, who were receptive to criticism and comments that they might not have agreed with originally, their predecessors hadn't. And uh, we were running a major fight with our threat shops throughout the OAXI of the Army. And basically, the work I was doing at the War College, the work Chris Donnelly was doing over in Britain, and all were challenging a lot of the basic wisdoms about the Soviet Army. And the threat shops were resisting any sort of change based on any kind of evidence that we could provide to them. We decided that the Soviet Army Studies Office should have an organ, an organ to do two things. One, to open a conversation with the Soviets, which we obviously did by 1987 and 88. And second, a vehicle for communications between Russian specialists and American specialists and those who had never bothered to even seek to publish in the West. And we needed a journal that could put contending views, articles with contending views out for the reading public. So I said, we're going to go ahead and create the Journal of Slavic Military Studies. That was the idea I had was in 86. It took me two years to launch it. I uh, found from my editorial board a wide range of junior analysts whose competence qualified them to be on the board. Condoleezza Rice, for example, was on my first editorial board, and she left only when she took a job in the administration. And that proved to be correct, because within a year or so, I had Russians who were seeking to publish articles in the journal. And there were several uh, Russian historians, more apolitical than political, that actually contributed articles. And uh, obviously, the the vehicle became a vehicle in, in the change that was occurring in the middle 1980s, uh, which was unique and significant, as it turned out. The Journal of Soviet Military Studies lasted only two years when we had the famous handshake. And the handshake 
caused us to shift gears very rapidly, and so, so did the high command in Washington, our high command. And the decision to rename it the Journal of Foreign Military Studies and broaden its scope to include Latin America and other areas was a very bright idea because the analysis of that we were putting out at SASO originally and then at FIMSO oftentimes proved correct. And I guess one of the best tests of that, I had an SCI clearance and was able to and was required to, to go behind the green door. Well, I discovered very early that going behind the green door with all the mechanisms for collection that are available and all does not give you a true reading of what's going on. So basically, we based our assessments on reading the Soviets' mail, reading their journals, Voyanaya Misel, Military Thought, Military Historical Journal, Sovietsky Voin, the Soviet soldier, a whole range of journals that we subscribe to, to develop, use pattern analysis and, and develop an understanding of what they were concerned with regarding the nature of war. It got to a point where I refused to go behind the green door. I wrote an article, I believe I published, and I, we also needed a journal that where my experts, and I handpicked them all, could uh, write their opinions of what was going on and have it heard and read by many people, matter of fact, all over the world. And we had subscriptions uh, all over the world very shortly. I wrote a paper in, I guess it was 1987 or 8, and published it in the journal on the, the force structure, future force structure of the, of the uh, Soviet army and uh, obviously the Russian army post-1990. It was predictive in nature, and it had all the numbers and figures. And I sent it to our folks in Washington for clearance, and it came back. It was kind of funny. I opened the envelope and looked at the thing, and they had scissored out the numbers in the text because they said, these things are too close to what we have, what, what we're determining are, are, are accurate, and we can't publish them because they're classified. So I went back to them, and I said, okay, that, that's fine with me if you want to scissor it out. I said, but there are two problems. One, I'm going to publish it, and I'm going to publish it with all the pages black with a little center label in white censored by the U.S. government. And I'm also going to publish the footnotes, which you forgot to clip the numbers out of because you don't read footnotes and endnotes. They backed down very quickly, and that was the last attempt to censor us out of Washington. But that was illustrative of the uses of this new... Matter of fact, the CIA tried shortly, a couple of years later, they tried to recruit me and recruit... By this time, I had retired and get me in to do the same thing in their organization because they were also beginning to appreciate the value of open source materials. But anyway, the journal itself, in short, was a vehicle for discussion, a vehicle for conversing with your opponents, your possible opponents. Mm -hmm. And that is a very healthy thing to do. And I've been very disgusted by the repeated attempts since that time to break off military relations or military contacts with counterparts in the Soviet Union or the Russian Federation. Sir, so if we could finish our conversation with a few questions on the current war in Ukraine, right? I'm very grateful. And the first is when you learned Russia had invaded Ukraine, how long did you expect the war to last? I really didn't know. I pretty much understood why they did what they did on the 24th of February, because it was in track with what they had written in the 1990s 
about the nature of war and the conduct of war, and it was in track with what Putin could have expected and apparently did expect, and that was no resistance by the, or little resistance by the Ukrainians. The special operation was essentially a show in force. And it was a show in force likely organized by the FSB and not by the military establishment itself. And of course, we'll never know to the extent, or at least we won't know for a while, the extent of military realization that this might have been folly. Hmm. But you have to understand this in the context of one of the major fields of study from 1945 to 1990. And that was, if you read Soviet literature, that was the nature of the beginning period of war, Nachala Period Voina. And it bothered them because institutionally, Russian Empire and the Soviet uh, Union never did well, never did. As a matter of fact, did disastrously when they tried to go to war, offensively or defensively. And you can go back to the Crimean War. You can go back to the war with Japan, the Japanese-Russian war at the turn of the century. And, of course, you can look at World War I as a classic example because they honored their alliance. The Russian Empire did with France, and they sent their forces in before they were ready and suffered the Missouri and Lakes and Tannenberg disasters in 1914 which marred their performance and probably helped set up the revolution that occurred later during the war. Stalin was clearly surprised by the actions of his fellow dictator in June 1941, and he was not ready for what transpired. And the Soviets, seared by that experience, you can go back to the Napoleonic Wars if you do want to, want to do the March on Moscow by Napoleon. He got there, mm-hmm. which was extraordinary. But this whole record of failure in the beginning periods of a war bugged them, really bugged them beyond belief, because they said if it's happened before repeatedly, it could happen again repeatedly. And this, I think, caused during the Cold War, the Soviets to make the expenditures they did on military affairs that ultimately helped bankrupt them. Now, Putin apparently, and I I emphasize the word apparently, judged that a Tremendous show of force would be enough to bring down Ukraine and bring them into line. He was also convinced that the loss of Ukraine to NATO after the U.S. for three or four years had promised that NATO would not expand and then did would end the Russian Federation's existence. He considered it a move that had to be taken. And he still considers today that Ukraine has to be conquered because the the defeat of Russia in this war will bring down the Russian Federation in pieces. So not just the Putin government, but the country as a whole. The country as a whole has been conditioned to accept that, that view. Yes. When he conducted the attack, he did it on a broad front. He did it from every quarter. He did it using essentially a force structure that he had used in Georgia. The new force structure they'd introduced based on their experiences with the Ogarkov strategic offensive back in the 70s and 80s, only the lower portion of it, which is the only portion they could sustain, and that is the organization of an army made up of separate armies and brigade and battalion groups, which was an army that could take care of internal problems within the Russian Federation, or perhaps the external problems like in Georgia. But it was not an army that could conduct what we would call strategic operations. It did not have the structure capable of doing it. 
his preparation period did not allow for the amassing of supplies, the amassing of logistics, the provisioning of the army, the training of the army in combat techniques. And what you ended up with, and I guess the most classic illustration of it, is that horrendous line of tanks and vehicles that piled up north of Kiev after the offensive faltered, largely abandoned on the highways. That was a huge group of units that had been ill-prepared and sent in without proper reconnaissance. They couldn't get off the roads. They didn't expect resistance. And this happened all over, all over the front. And uh, it happened, and they, they simply could not sustain operations. And in the face of strong Ukrainian resistance, at first without much weaponry, the nature of the training of the troops and the nature of their support, even their feeding, and this is why when you saw the, the looting of 7-Elevens and type stores early on, they didn't have rations. I mean, this was an ill-prepared operation. Yeah. But when the boss says do it, and you're in the military, and for that matter, probably in the corporations as well, you tend to do it without complaint. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you saw that, that news conference a day or so after the special operation was launched when Putin's chief of intelligence stood up and tried to say, this might not be as easy as we thought, and he, he told him to sit down and shut up. That's on the record now, and uh, pretty much signifies that this was something that the military was not prepared to do and they certainly weren't prepared for a war of the scope that has evolved. Mm. Why do you think Western intelligence agencies, military organizations, hyperinflated, and I'm, I'm using that term deliberately because it certainly seems that was the case, hyperinflated the Russians' capabilities and competence before this war began? Because their knowledge of the, of the Russian army was so weak, basically. No one, no one has studied it much. Most of the organizations that studied the nature of the, of the Russian Federation's forces were, uh, I'm, I'm looking at my old organization now, FEMSO, that's tried to keep pace. I mean, it was one of the few organizations that did detailed open source analysis that survived. I think it was the only organization that survived the cleansing back in the early 1990s that abolished all those organizations because the government at the time wanted to. And wanted to embark on a program to democratize the Russian Federation rather than deal with it as a partner. If the Russians lose, the Putin government collapses, do you think we'll see a collapse of the Russian state and what might arise in its place? <laughs> That's an interesting question. It's one of the questions that I have refused to answer to anyone now, because frankly, I don't know what the hell is going to happen. My comments about understanding the nature of war make me suspicious that this is one of those instances with a woeful understanding of the nature of war and geopolitics can cause mistakes to be made. Mm -hmm. And uh, the reason I put that in the army's in the government's passive form is because I can't I can't determine who's going to make the mistake. Putin believes the Russian Federation will be destroyed because of its nature, because of its multinational configuration and content, because of its multi-religious content, its huge Muslim minority in, in central Russia, all of those things that in the early 19, in the late 80s and early 90s, we argued on the basis of national security that we should be cooperating with Russia. 
on, uh, the threat from China, the threat to Islamic terrorism, and so on, all those things that brought us together, and the fact that the Warsaw Pact disappeared, NATO did not, resulted in what's transpired since. And what's transpired since is the steady erosion of Russian significance in terms of geopolitics, the steady expansion of NATO to the point where NATO now considers, which it promised not to do, incidentally, it considers allowing Georgia in, and Ukraine is expecting to get into NATO. If this process continues, Putin believes that almost certainly the Russian Federation itself is going to begin to crumble when the internal areas of Kazan and the areas of the Volga Valley become subject to, how should I say it, Muslim fanaticism, which has already affected the Caucasus region and the North Caucasus. He has grounds to be correct about the collapse of the Russian Federation. What will replace it? I don't know. But I'll tell you that China is, has great interest in the Russian Far East for resources. There are many portions of Soviet Central Asia that are now semi-independent, Kazakhstan and all, that might reorient their interests southwards into the Muslim world. And the same thing might happen with the areas of southern Russia as well. The solution that Putin seems to have adopted in the wake of the failure of his initial attack into Ukraine, it seems to be what Stalin did after December of 1943. And that is get his military in order, take the time out, create a breathing spell where proper training is instituted. It all takes time where proper logistics are created and a proper, in, in my estimation, million man army can be created that's actually trained to do something and then create a force structure that can conduct strategic operations. And he's begun to do that. I guess about a year ago, before this began, he, in fact, abolished the military districts as the internal strategic control mechanism and established, reestablished high commands, direction commands that are capable of conducting. This, this is all out of Kharkov's playbook of the 1970s and 80s. Question is whether he can do all of this, because Russia is not the Soviet Union, and it's lost much of its population. And it's got a more sophisticated population, and it has been uh, infiltrated by Western ideas and Western concepts. It's been remarkable how well he has controlled the news and the uh, into Russia since 24 February, mm -hmm. and tightened tightened the controls on the Russian population, a la Stalin. So I would expect him to do this. How long it will take, I don't know, but a good model for what transpired in addition to World War II would be the model with Finland in 1939. Everyone knows about the disasters the Red Army suffered in October and November of 1939 when it attacked Finland without proper preparations. And the Nazis were watching. Hitler was watching. But nobody remembers what happened the following March, March 1940, when Stalin rather viciously rooted out incompetence in his ranks and launched a new offensive against Finland that drove Finland from the war mm -hmm. and from their potential alliance with Germany. This is the model that Putin would like to follow if he's allowed to follow it. And therein lies, lies the question. 
Putin is 70-odd years old, 72, 73, I've forgotten his age. There are folks within his entourage who probably don't accept what he's doing, but he has established political control such now that uh, it's very difficult to remove him from power. And it may very well be that uh, this war will not end until he is removed from power. Yeah. I think it's anyone's guess as to how it's going to turn out and where the chips will fall. But it is interesting that this observation that whether it's the Soviets, the Russian army, military, often they take these massive losses up front and give the appearance of near collapse or or near failure. And yet they're able to rebound. They're able to learn. It does take time, as you mentioned. And they come back with, with a vengeance. They may still stumble. They may still make mistakes. But they're often able to achieve their goal. And I, I'm wondering if that's what we're going to see here in Ukraine. But you know, again, I think time is going to be a, maybe the critical factor. Well, you're absolutely right. And, and it's no coincidence that Putin is shaping the propaganda war about this venture. He's shaping it into something that resembles World War II. Mm-hmm. It is not Ukraine attacking Russia. It is not Ukraine seeking to join NATO. It is, in fact, the Nazis in Ukraine who are, who are going to attach to a NATO of which Germany is a member. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's he's conjured up the images of 1941, images that date back all the way to the Tartar conquest and the necessity for getting rid of the Tartars and then getting rid of other invaders, Swedes in the 18th century and, and the French in the 19th century. I mean, he's conjuring up these images to unite a Russian population behind his views. And the big question today is whether that will work in the 20th century as it worked in the 19th, 18th, and 17th. Mm -hmm. Colonel Glantz, I want to sincerely thank you for your time, sir. This has been, as I expected, a fascinating, edifying, and and wide-ranging conversation as I ask all my guests, do you have any parting thoughts or shots for our listeners? No, I would, I would once again issue my appeal. If you have any inclination to, to examining the obscure, consider studying military history and in particular military history as it affects Russia. Russia still occupies a good portion of the, the world's landmass. It needs to be understood. I have a great deal of difficulty with the situation today because I was at the forefront uh, of, of the movement from 88 to 93 that tried to bring in a partnership with Russia. And I know what was promised and I know what was what promises were broken. And the fact that subsequent events have made me a liar to the Russians uh, is, is, is disheartening. Mm-hmm. And I think we need more of a, if you could coin a phrase, a Kissingerian view, an informed view of the context in which all of these events are taking place. We need wisdom today, and wisdom is based on knowledge. It's not based on just hope, hope that this will turn out the way that you you want it to turn out. Wisdom informs how it will be turned out. That's about it. I could probably pontificate and and, uh, recommend some other things. We do need more people to study this war. 
I feel rather alone in that regard and inadequate because I'm 81 years old. So you take it as it comes, and I will do just that, and I will continue to work uh, and will not quit until I no longer can work. But I thank you for the chance to air these views, and I offer you, uh, if you have any other podcast you'd like to do on any specific subject that is less broad-reaching as this one, please call on me. If I can do it, my door is always open, and if I have time, I will, I will always do it. Sir, thank you again. Let this be a, a rallying cry to listeners and, and to other folks to help carry the, the burden of research and analysis and trying to understand, I think, easily, arguably, the bloodiest conflict in human history and certainly one that has a great deal to teach us and we will certainly be in touch. Thank you again. My pleasure.